moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Hey everybody and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Ripoll. Yes. Skyping that's, that's in. That's how I'm doing it. That's how I'm doing it. You, I got I got a new I got a new call sign. I got a new uh, I got a new sign off. You you guys are going to be really excited to hear. It's going to be great. That's awesome. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I'm also really looking forward to talking with our guest today. The multi-talented Sean Dwyer is here. He's one of the hosts and uh, the webmaster behind my favorite movie podcast out there, Film Junk. Hey, Sean, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited Absolutely. to talk Ridley Scott. Yes, that is the director of this um, episode. And really quick, I mean, as I've said a few times before, if it weren't for Film Junk and Movie Club, there may not be a director's club. So, again, thanks, Sean, for all the hard work you do in putting that show together. Uh, I've, I've contributed some goofy songs and remixes your way. And uh, I... Uh, so Yeah. Also, you're a video game programmer, correct? By day? That is correct. Yeah, awesome. I don't do the movie, the movie blogger, podcaster thing for a living. I don't. I don't know <laughs> if that's even possible, to be honest with you. But I guess some people do. Well, um, I, I also want to mention that you occasionally put out another podcast called uh, Game Junk, and despite not being an avid gamer, I, I quite enjoy that show as well. And I know my my co-host is uh, is kind of a gamer, wouldn't you say, Patrick? Yeah, yeah. I'm, in fact, actually, uh, recently I found out there's an arcade uh, about 30 minutes from my place called Galloping Ghost in Brookfield, and that's a it's like a it's a huge arcade with a lot of classic machines and new machines. And instead of having to pay for the machines, it's 15 bucks, and then it's all free play for the whole day. So I've right. actually gone there a couple times, and I've gotten really into Donkey Kong lately. Nice. Um, that that's sweet. Yeah, yeah, Donkey Kong and Burger Time are my jams. Uh, <laughs> and they're kind of they're kind of similar uh, games, uh, you know, if you think about it. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I haven't, I have not, I'm, I sadly have not heard game junk. Though I am interested, uh, Jim, like you, because like the last game you've played is m- many generations ago. Like, like a, yeah, a game I gotten hardcore into. I mean, I've played like little things here and there, and. I've played stuff on my iPhone and iPad, but uh, nothing substantial. I, I, just just the image of you listening to a game podcast, it seems, because I'm sure there's like a lot of just shorthand that, like, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've never played a sandbox game, you know, or like, <laughs> no, they but didn't have those on the Genesis. I think like. just, uh, you know, again, I'm kind of a junkie for, uh, you know, interesting conversations from people who are passionate and knowledgeable about what they're into, you know, I mean... It's not like I'm going to go out and listen to sports podcasts, but uh, no, I think, uh, you know, Game Junk is, is I, I think I've even asked a couple of questions as sort of like a non-expert or newbie or something like what kind of, what kind of games can I, you know, play on my iPhone that are cool or whatever. And, you know, I've asked a couple of things like about first person shooters because I was into those for a little while. Um, and I recently right. watched... Uh, Indie game, the movie, uh, a really interesting documentary that I found quite quite compelling the whole way through. Yeah, I was a big fan of that movie actually as well. I've heard from some people who are in the game industry who weren't as impressed by the movie, hmm. 
And uh, I think it really just had to do with, like, they picked three sort of representatives of the indie game community. And if, the, you know, if somebody watching it felt like, well, these people aren't reflective of my experience of the indie game community, they didn't <laughs> like the movie, which I think is ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I think it's a huge uh, film in terms of, for, for somebody, I guess, like yourself, Jim, who maybe isn't a huge gamer, but would watch this and get sort of an appreciation for what goes into making games and, you know, just sort of without getting too much into the whole video games as art thing. I mean, that's been a, been a big debate over the past few years, but I think it it's an important piece of the puzzle for that discussion. So, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I, I just, I respond to the creative process because I mean, like, like Jay, I've gone through a couple of productions of documentaries and stuff and, I realize that a lot of the hard work a person puts into a project sometimes isn't very glamorous. It, it does involve sitting in one room, you know, in front of a computer for long stretches of time. And, I, you know, and even just obviously it's not the same, but putting a podcast together does eat up a little bit of the day. Um, so, I mean, it's just there, there, there are elements about it that I, I, I uh, you know, responded to. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that, the, you know, I could be mistaken because I'm not an expert, but those three games seem to be um, inspired by games that I grew up with and sort of the retro feel of those. Um, I, I can't remember. I think there might be platforms. It was, yeah, well, it was, I, I've not seen the film, but if I, if, if I, it was the creators of Fez, uh, Braid, and one other. Super Meat Boy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I I have Braid and Super Meat Boy. You could get those, Jim. You would. I think you would dig, especially Braid. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, from what I saw, you know, I think those those games would appeal to me. And you know, I'm not into the more elaborate and kind of like uh, challenging, time consuming games myself. But um, there was a time when I was addicted to you know your your Sonic the Hedgehog and Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> Very simple games. Now you're just addicted to uh, <laughs> to pronouncing uh, game mascots as if you were a 60 year old man. Yeah, the, you know the old Sonic the Hedgehog and the Ducktales. <laughs> oh man, Ducktales—that is that a was fun. a real good game. I know. Yeah. Uh, all right, I think we should get into. Uh... Oh yeah, by the way, we haven't mentioned uh, we're going to be covering Blade Runner and Gladiator. Oh yeah. Uh, for Ridley Scott, we're not covering Alien because everyone knows Alien is amazing, and I like I can't imagine there being a lot left to sort of say about uh, Alien. I think I've sort of heard it all personally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and I'm cer- and certainly after you know Prometheus came out, I'm sure there were a lot of Alien sort of retrospective podcasts that came out. Um, some I even guessed it on that, you know. So we, we decided to uh, forego Alien, but. You know, don't fear not. We do know that it is a masterpiece. Oh, absolutely. I still think it's the best thing Ridley Scott has ever done. Um, spoiler alert for our later in our top three. <laughs> right. Oh, that's right, Sean. I forgot to mention that uh, at the very end of the show, after our discussion on Ridley Scott, we'll just be listing our top three favorite Ridley Scott movies. So if you want to think of that yep. in, the, in the meantime, cool. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and get into uh, what we watched this week. Um, what movies did we watch this week? Watch this week! What movies did we watch this week? Watch this week! What movies did we watch this week? Yes! Oh my god! 
first this time and that way we can sort of uh transition over into uh you know uh patrick's choice and then we can you know have an overall discussion on on that film but one of the bigger surprises for me came out last week and uh i I had a chance to catch up with it with a good friend of mine that i hadn't seen in a while and uh, i wanted to bring it up just because i don't know if it's just going to uh going to get swept under the rug but uh uh, I really, really loved Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And uh, I think it it's weird because at first my, my friend and I were kind of a little perplexed <laughs> because uh, for like the first 20 minutes, at one point we were fairly certain it was going to be more comedic and then something shocking or unexpected would happen that felt like a slap in the face and tonally shifted things for a while and normally like that sort of tonal shift would be you know uh, not necessarily a flaw but something distracting and not a good way but uh i don't know this this overall this the movie worked on me and it, it felt like just kind of a less frantic version of something like miracle mile or uh don mckellar's last night which is just kind of like you know the the apocalyptic films that take place um, over a short period of time, sometimes in the span of one night. But I guess I have a fondness for these lo-fi uh, takes on the apocalypse. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for an against-all-odds kind of a rom-com, but I don't think that uh, it necessarily falls under that genre either. It's Again, the shifts in tone were kind of made me as i was watching it not able to uh, pigeonhole it immediately i i think that you know it it veers from being comedic to dramatic and romantic to sad and i realized though i think for me and you know i maybe i'm not the most demanding film viewer sometimes but if you just put two realistic characters in a movie and set them off on an adventure that feels you know, honest and genuine, then I'm completely on board for it. Uh, you know, there, there's kind of no denying that, uh, you know, even when I saw the trailers, the idea of Steve Carell and Kira Knightley together is kind of an odd couple, <laughs> a little bit of an unusual choice. I mean, for the most part, they are, uh, you know, just having a connection outside of anything uh, sexual, but there is some reviews out there that claim it's kind of another case of manic dream girl meets sad loser, only this time set during the apocalypse. And uh, I have been apologetic in the past for a, a few movies that fall under that, um, you know, overall synopsis. But I, I don't know. To me, the the movie surpasses that. It really is about just connecting with someone when you've kind of written off that idea of it ever happening. And that's something that I guess I just responded to on a personal level. And it felt like that feeling of, you know, love can seem like the best thing to happen at the worst time. (laughs) So it feels more like a dilemma. You know, the, the act of having a connection feels like a dilemma rather than something that lifts them out of their funk. So I, I don't know. I just think this is one of those movies where it's warmth, I think just worked on me 
in a very emotionally satisfying way that I even got choked up at the end. <laughs> but I think it's it's really the actors. They bring a lot to their roles without overplaying things, and mm. everything just flowed in a very organic way for me. And I don't know, I, I, it's, it's really a well-written, you know, coming-together kind of movie, and I look forward to seeing it again. It's really good. Yeah, it's the actors are the reasons I've been kind of skeptical about this movie because I'm just so tired of Steve Carell's sort of feels like he's been playing the same sad sack character since like Forty Year Old Virgin a little bit. And Steve Carell is like he's not an actor. Like he is well, not, I mean that's not his background. His background is improvising, and he was an amazing improviser at Second City mm-hmm. and and all around Chicago, and he, and one of the things about improvisers is they can do like so many different kinds of characters and it's so sad that it's just every movie he's in he's just well he's just this kind of guy who he's just not happy but he's too nice to complain about it and he just I mean he just needs to meet the right girl like I'm just it's just it's such wasted potential there's a little bit of that in there but I think he brings some more nuance to this uh you know I mean I thought he was. I thought he was pretty good in Little Miss Sunshine. You know, I mean, he's the exact same. He's just like the sad sack who yeah. is just like, well, I guess, I guess I just need to learn how to, you know, take control of my own life and and stop being so sorry for myself. Like that's that's the that's the major character arc of every of every character he's done since when when did Forty uh, Year Old Virgin come out? Two thousand six. Yeah, like, like that's six years of this. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Brick from Anchorman, totally different. <laughs> well, Brick was, I think Brick was before Forty uh, Year Old Virgin, but I agree, yeah. and that's that, and that's actually part of my point is he can be so great, um, and he's sort of stuck in these weird middling dramedies, which I mean I haven't seen this, so I can't I really like lump this, this in. But I like this and Crazy Stupid Love. I mean, about you w- guys, uh, Dan in real life. Yeah, that's I, one of the ones we're talking about. I did not like that movie. I, have I would not agree seen that it. middling, but. Yeah, I I, that, I was a little worried that this movie looked a little too much like Dan in real life, just with an apocalypse going on. But I have heard good things about it, so I don't think you're alone in liking it, Jim. Yeah, it surprised me. I mean, again, sometimes walking into something because um, you know my friend and I we we we, we just sort of snuck into this uh, after uh, seeing the Avengers again, and which is my third time seeing it because I love the Avengers so much and. I didn't have like the highest expectations based on the trailer, but um, I don't know. I mean, just the, I wouldn't say it has at all the same feel as something like After Hours, but it has that same let's run into crazy people randomly while ha- you know, and yet like you know there is that sort of you know romantic involvement going on, but I think it's less about him feeling sorry for himself and more and just being open to the idea of having a connection even when it seems kind of futile and you know like obviously the world may or may not end and uh i think it's great to see anyone reach a point of like realization that oh yeah you know what i i i really can you know go out there into the world and 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 you know connect with people or try to come to terms with things from my past and it does it in a way that I didn't feel like was manipulative at all. So, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what you think of this, Patrick. And I'm, I think, I think it's good to see that in a movie, but I feel like I've been seeing it in every movie and it's just true. Maybe it's just uh, like, I like that 
in yeah. general, so it could be a bias, but I think it's done really well. And the uh, is it as is it as funny as Melancholia? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not at all. Okay. So as far as end of the world comedies, <laughs> stay tuned for a couple of weeks when we bring up Melancholia. I'm sure. Sorry, I wanted yeah. to just oh, like yeah. be a teaser right. trailer. For a second, Our next episode is uh, Lars von Trier. Yeah. Um, so, what'd you see, Patrick? And you know, we can sort of. I haven't seen it yet. I'm really excited to see what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last last night, I saw it for the second time with my girlfriend. I saw Moonrise Kingdom, which is Wes Anderson's new movie. And Wes Anderson is one of those guys who I just sort of written off not not as a as a filmmaker, but just sort of as someone who had found his groove and now it just could be relied on to churn out movies in that method you know mm-hmm. uh i think because i i mean rushmore is one of my favorite movies ever um i'm not so hot on royal tenenbaums but it, there's a lot in it that's really amazing and then every movie after that i just felt a little less connected to and it felt a little more just sort of like wes anderson doing his thing which again it's so unique and it's so and like there's always so much in it that's interesting, um, even if it's you know something like Darjeeling Limited, uh, where what was mostly interesting was just how he filmed India. But I think like Fantastic Mr. Fox like knocks something loose in his head because Moonrise Kingdom just feels so uninhibited. It feels like the most, in a way, it's it, it's almost like what I'm what I've been describing, where it's just like Wes Anderson doing his thing, but it's. It's, it feels like his thing without fear of being tethered to reality. It's his. It's him doing his thing without fear of, like, and I, because I, I think it's like you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox was an animated film, but at the same time, it was stop motion animated, so there was still actual photography going on, and I think maybe that like sort of convinced him of, like, how he can do these kind of crazy things and how, you know, things can still hold weight and credibility, uh, even if they just are completely outrageous because this film is totally outrageous and it's really funny. And he's working with kids, which I love. He's really like, it's all his dialogue sounds best coming out of kids. Um, so I don't, it, 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 uh, now, now Jim, you haven't seen it. As you said, uh, Sean, you have seen this. Yes, I have. Yeah. What did you think? I was a big fan of it as well. I wasn't quite like, I've heard a lot of people again saying it's like, you know, potentially his best movie since, you know, Rushmore or something like that. And I I wouldn't go that far, but I like it a lot. I, I definitely think it's I'd say it's better than Darjeeling Limited, although I was a fan of that. I, I still love Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's like probably top three Wes Anderson movies for me. Mm. But uh yeah, I agree, like the use of kids as the main character is a huge reason why the movie works. Uh, I think setting it in uh, in the the '60s was like a great idea. Like you know, that's always something where it's like he uses these these '60s things, and people are like, "Oh, he's just being a hipster or whatever." But now there's actually a reason to do that, and he can just go. You know, like you said, he's kind of un- uninhibited with this movie. I think that's one of the reasons why. Um, and yeah, I just think it's, it's funny. It's endearing. It's pretty much, you know, all the things you love in a Wes Anderson movie and it doesn't really get caught up in, um, you know, overly cartoony man childs, if you will. Right. 
because it's just a regular child. <laughs> well, I think his, I think I even said at one point that his voice probably just works very well coming out of you know twelve year olds. Um, but also around that time, you, you you sort of feel scatterbrained and uninhibited sometimes, and maybe it just that 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 adolescent period, kind of like with Rushmore, just works well with his, you know, with his. Yeah, style. I mean, I, I would say that there's parts of it that feel like Rushmore, but at the same time, like uh, this feels like. And it's it's weird to make such strong distinctions about ages when everyone's at different places at different ages. But like this distinctly feels like a movie about twelve year olds, where Rushmore distinctly felt like a movie about a fifteen year old. Which is it's three years different, but it actually does make sort of a big difference as far as the innocence. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Max Max Fisher's sort of a very uh, character tries to come off across as very jaded, and he's he's not as uh, he doesn't sort of open himself up as much as the as the children in this do i'm curious um, about the uh the soundtrack because uh i mean I, that's one thing I, I think is really memorable about a lot of his films particularly rushmore and royal tenenbaums there's so many music cues it's it's not as it's not I, w- I wouldn't say it's prevalent it's mostly uh, hank williams as far as like needle drops go hmm. but there's not even as much uh mark mother's bow i don't even know if mark's mother did it this but it's it definitely has that I think it was uh, Alexander Desplat or whatever his name is. All right, but it still sounds. It has that sound hmm. that the Rush that all Wes Anderson films sort of have as far as their orchestration. Yes, it's whimsical and it's light, but it's very classical uh, right. feeling at the same time. Um, yeah, and but then it's the problem is it does feel a little like weightless. Like there are a couple of characters who just feel like incredibly underdeveloped. Um, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand's character in specific, I would say, just like there are, there's this whole you know subplot sort of thing about their marriage that just feels like the just the bare minimum pieces are given, and and then and then at some points it just feels like he sort of uh, there's like a specific part. Uh, I think this is more just towards the beginning before the story really gets going. Like it feels like he's just, uh, it feels like you're just watching like Wes Anderson's Pinterest where he's just showing you like, look at all these cool pastel or pastel colored things from the sixties. And Ooh, it's I like, like that. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure. No. And it's, and it's enjoyable, but at the same time, it's just like, wow, we're really like just the camera's really lingering on all of these, uh, jacks and library books. And just, well, is there like a kind of like a montage, like how there is after the opening credits of Rushmore with like, we see all the clubs that he's involved in. Is there something? It's, like- I would say it's yeah. During the opening credits, it's sort of a montage oh, of, cool. of, basically what you would imagine the life of the young Tenenbaums to sort of be where it's just, it's all in the house and it's all just like various activities that are very much have associations with sort of the sixties, like listening, like just sitting around, like the concept of sitting around and listening to records is kind of like a, a sort of a bygone thing. And yeah, um, Um, that's something that's probably going to get to me. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's one of those, you know, familiar things that if it shows up in a movie and because that's what I did when I was growing up, I had like a little mini record player and playing my dad's records. So. Right, exactly. And that's what that's in this. And, and it, there's, a, there's a lot in this, I think, that we'll get to, Jim. And as well it should. It's a completely wonderful movie. How are the kids? How are the kids' performances? They're good. Good. They're very, I mean, the thing with that Wes Anderson movies is that the, the emo, the, you know, 
the characters don't emote as much there. It's it's a lot more internal. So I none of the performances I would say like wow that really blew me away. But not there was not a per- single performance that stuck out as oh that was kind of unfortunate. Like I wish they found a different little kid for that. Um, yeah, so I really love Moonrise Kingdom a lot, and I saw it twice, and it's just, I love the hell out of it each time. It's probably my favorite movie of the year, but then again, I've, like, seen four movies this year, so, that came out this year, I should say. Right, which is probably why we're gonna bypass the mid-year top five discussion. We might have done that last year, I can't remember, but, um... Make it a top four? (laughs) Yeah. It would literally have to be a top two for me. Like, I think I... Maybe I'll just like throw a bunch of movies your way, Patrick, and be like, "Watch these in a week." <laughs> yeah, no, because I got to prepare for this. This uh, this this podcast is preparation intensive. I don't have a lot of true. time. Well, no, it's it's I don't no, have a lot true. of money to go to to the theaters. No, that's uh, true. It's really expensive to see a movie, and that's why, like every now and then, I'm grateful that there's a theater near my house where if you get up at ten in the morning, you can see a movie for five bucks. You know. Yeah. So that's rare. That's rare, and that's also how it was in Indiana. So it was nice to see the Avengers and Seeking I would, Friends. Okay, you want you want my top top films of 2012? Moonrise Kingdom, number one. Moonrise Kingdom, and Moonrise Kingdom. Number one is Moonrise Kingdom. Number two is Cabin in the Woods. There is no number three. <laughs> number three. <laughs> number three is you're fired. <laughs> uh, so Sean, really quickly, uh, obviously you don't have to like go into great detail about the uh, upcoming. Uh, premium podcasts involving the Spider-Man movies, uh, right? But uh, I mean, just briefly, you know, I, I know you probably watched a, a couple of them so far, maybe all three, and just want to give like a quick overview on those, and everybody can check out those the official discussion soon enough. Right. Well, I, I've only watched uh, the first two of Sam Raimi's so far. I still have to watch part three, but I can actually talk about a little bit about the Amazing Spider-Man because I actually saw that a couple nights oh, ago. Oh, nice! All right, so, uh, I'll give you a little sneak preview of my thoughts on that. Great. But uh, uh, Spider-Man one and two, um, you know, Spider-Man one in my head, I kind of thought um, would be not not a painful rewatch, but in in my head, I was thinking, you know, this one probably is going to seem a little dated now. And I remember having problems with um, with uh, Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin, and it was just a little too over the top and and all that stuff. But uh, I got to say, I really enjoyed rewatching the first Spider Man. Like, there's a lot of stuff in that movie that I think set the pace for superhero movies for the next decade, hmm. and um, I think it still really holds up. I do think Spider-Man 2 is a little better. Um, I, I, I don't know that I think Spider-Man 2 is a perfect film. I'm, I'm sure Jay would say that it is a perfect film. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the only problem with uh, the first two is that the villains feel, feel kind of similar. And that actually kind of uh, becomes a bit of an issue with the amazing Spider-Man as well. Because, you know, once again, it's a scientist who, you know, something goes wrong and eventually he just kind of gets a little crazy and there's not a lot of great motivation there. Um, So, yeah, with the new Amazing Spider-Man, I thought the villain, the lizard, was maybe one of the weak parts of the film. But overall, I got to say, it was way better than I thought it would be. I was really impressed with it. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's going to not necessarily erase... Raimi's trilogy in people's minds 
but it's definitely going to make people feel like you know it's justified its own existence, and I want to see where it goes next. Uh, I thought Andrew Garfield was quite good uh, and, and definitely different than uh, Tobey Maguire. His his Peter Parker is a little more angsty, if you will. Cool. Okay. Uh, okay. But you know, I wouldn't say that the Amazing Spider-Man is darker. Uh, I know some people thought they were going a little darker with this. I would just say it's a bit more grounded in reality, uh, which I think works really well. Huh. Uh, and, you know, you've got minor differences like the um, uh, the mechanical uh, web slingers and stuff like that, which, uh, you know, are they seem like a minor thing, but they actually there's sort of a plot thing that comes up with them that actually, you know, is something different. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, just I thought the way that they shot some of the action was pretty exciting. The way they used 3D was actually worthwhile. And, uh, yeah, I'm just excited to see what other people think of this and, and what the reactions are because I really liked it. How did they use the uh, 3D in an interesting way? Well, I mean, there's, uh, you know, some shots where he's sort of first learning to, uh, you know, swing from buildings and stuff. And there's one shot in particular where he kind of, for the first time, is just sort of like dropping off of this building. And you just, you really feel the sense of height, uh, which, you know, you never really got in any of Sam Raimi's films. And uh, there's a few other things. I'm trying to think now, like they do some first person stuff, uh, not like they had a little bit in the trailer and... You know they don't get too carried away with it because it's a little disorienting for too long. But uh, there's just a lot of interesting camera work, and the way they shoot the action is actually pretty creative, I thought. And uh, it makes up for the fact that they didn't have a huge budget for this movie. Uh, you know, I think it just forced them to be a little more creative with how they did things, and I think it worked. Wow. Now, did you, in preparation for this episode, did you watch the Japanese Spider-Man television series? <laughs> It's funny you mention that because uh, my friend uh, Wintel has been bugging me that we need to include that on the premium podcast. <laughs> right. We get, he, he operates a giant robot and fights monsters. Yeah. I mean, if it was just a single movie, I'd be all for it. But it's a series, right? Right. Yeah. I, I think that it may have been one of those things where they released like an international movie that was just like three episodes tied together or something. But yeah, it was a series. Yeah. Uh, it's, I've seen it like an episode or two, and it's pretty fun, actually. Well, it's interesting for me to, because uh, I actually did rewatch Spider-Man Two. Uh, it's it's one of those movies that's on on the watch once a year pile for me because I just enjoy the hell out of it. And I think seeing it pretty much the night before the Avengers brought out a lot of like, yeah, there. Are, some of the dialogue in Spider-Man Two is really hokey and ridiculous, and kind of. I know it's a comic book universe and everything, but it, it, it it's just a like just you know spelling everything out, or at least the character motivations are constantly spelled out. That that definitely um, hurts a little bit upon rewatches after seeing the Avengers, because I think the Avengers does it a little bit more gracefully than Spider-Man Two in terms of like you know uh, just how the characters talk to one another. But I, I think that Spider-Man 2, especially some of the action sequences, uh, um, don't necessarily you know, rival the last you know battle in the Avengers. But I just, like, again, I've probably said it a half a dozen times, but the uh, that hospital 
sequence in Spider-Man 2 still gives me goosebumps when I see it. I just think it's phenomenal. But I think Raimi's like that's that was kind of like his pinnacle for um for for just you know managing to, you know, do a a uh, Hollywood blockbuster comic book movie but still retain some of that dark man kind of uh you know, his trademark sort of like dark man kind of sense of humor throughout. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it, it, he kind of, you know, he was able to fit his style into those movies, uh, you know, without, you know, just letting sort of the Hollywood machine smooth it over and turn it into just a watered down blockbuster. So I can appreciate that for sure. Yeah. And I do like the first Spider-Man. I think just it becomes a little too conventional, uh, you know, through the last act, which I think it's kind of like an overall, um, you know, feeling about the movie, just the Green Goblin stuff and seeing him talk through the mask and everything. It's just not as, you know, uh, terrorizing as you would it's hope. A, it's a little campy for sure. Yeah, it's campy and, you know, that's fine. I'm very forgiving about it. Um, I'm, I'm a Raimi apologist in some cases, but uh, I just, I think Spider-Man 2 and the Avengers are pretty much like neck and neck for me as being like the top comic book movies right now. I, uh, I, I've never been hot on the Raimi movies, and I, I, I honestly think they could have done to be a little more campy because my, my main problem with the Raimi movies is they put so much on the relationship between Peter Parker and Mary Jane, sure. and it's just like, especially in Spider-Man 2 where that whole love triangle thing becomes like half of a very long movie, and they're not really well-developed characters enough for it to be interesting for me, and it just feels like very melodramatic where just people are having just conversations where they're just like well i don't know well it's just different now i'm sorry it's like it's just i'm sorry peter i'm sorry mary jane i'm sorry like it's just <laughs> it's just like way too melodramatic for me for that kind of movie uh yeah it stands but, out a little bit more for me and, and and with that in mind and just seeing how the characters interact and how the relationships play a role so um you know smoothly i guess uh in the avengers you know, I think that I just think that in terms of Raimi's direction, I just I get quite the charge out of it, out of watching it, and I, I think that it does get a little bit, you know, bogged down by those things that you bring up, but they they don't bother me in in, in Spider Man Two. Whereas, like, I think in Spider Man Three, it's just a little bit too much of everything going on and too many villains, and I th- I think that one was a lot sloppier, but I. I haven't watched it since I've seen it the first time, and I don't know if I'm excited to to, to uh, rewatch it anytime soon. But uh, I'm 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 actually kind of interested in the 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 reboot here. I mean, I had had no expectations with this director because he just did 500 Days of Summer, which you know it's kind of an odd choice for for this guy to go on to do a you know a comic book movie. But hey, you know I've been hearing pretty good buzz about it, uh, so should be cool. Looking forward to it. Should be a fun time, you know, summer type movie to check out. Definitely. Good times. All right, guys. Uh, I think we're ready to mosey right along then to uh, the director of the episode, Ridley Scott. Great Scott, Patrick. We didn't say it at the same time. Oh, that's right. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we normally we normally say the director's name at the same time. It's like this weird tradition that happened for no reason, but... uh. I guess I was uh, I was I was trying to think about if I had seen Spider Man three, <laughs> and I I couldn't remember I I have not. And it's also this is one of the few times where um, 
you know, we're doing the Skype thing and maybe not being able to make eye contact too might have played a role. Oh, that's right. We're not in the same room for once. Yeah. We didn't even mention that, did we? No, but people know about it now. Oh, are they? Is this still part of the show? <laughs> it can be. <laughs> Director! In 1937, Ridley Scott grew up in South Shield, England with brother Tony Scott. After attending the Royal College of Art, Ridley and Tony formed Ridley Scott Associates, a commercial and film company, in 1968. They were successful throughout the 70s, but it was Ridley's first feature film, The Duelist, that got him a job directing the 1978 sci-fi horror film called Alien. And his career would never be the same. It was four years later, in 1982, that Ridley adapted Philip K. Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep as Blade Runner, simultaneously introducing Philip K. Dick to Hollywood and his worlds to mass audiences who had never seen science fiction environments quite like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how do you want to – do you want to introduce the uh, – because we, we got a great voicemail from Robert Reinecke. Reinecke, yes. Oh, that was one of the things I shouldn't have closed out. Right. Okay. Not a problem. We got a great voicemail from listener, uh, frequent contributor, row three contributor, Robert Reinecke, uh, about Blade Runner and sort of what it was like as to, to sort of see that for the first time. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and play that. Hello, Jim and Patrick. This is Robert Reinecke from wherethelongtailends.com. I have to say I'm excited that you're tackling Ridley Scott, uh, even after uh, mixed reaction Prometheus. Uh, I'm a teen of the 80s and live with uh, the one-two punch of Alien and Blade Runner back-to-back, and that bought Ridley Scott a lifetime's worth of goodwill. I know we've all talked about the uh, relative perfection of Alien in the past, but I want to talk about uh, Blade Runner. Uh, for many of us that grew up in the 80s, uh, Blade Runner was our cerebral sci-fi film. 2001 was the film for, for our par- of our parents' generation, and uh, Blade Runner was something that we could claim for our own. Uh, the best uh, word I can use to describe Blade Runner for us is how evocative it was of a future. Uh, we don't need to know what the literally what uh, sea beams glittering near Tannhauser Gate looks like just to grasp the idea of it and the beauty of it. It's poetry in that aspect. Uh, which is brings me along to uh, the big questions that Blade Runner asked and uh, how the 
question of is Deckard a replicant really doesn't mean a whole lot in the big picture. Blade Runner is in a movie uh, like uh, uh, the writings of Isaac Asimov where all the I's have to be dotted and the T's have to be crossed. It's an idea of uh, uh, mood and uh, general ideas. Uh, the, the whole idea of the film is what, it, what does it mean to be human and the text of the film pretty much says that it's uh, uh, a vague, blurry notion, not a, a hard line drawn. So in, in that aspect, I think uh, the idea of whether or not Deckard is a replicant is uh, uh, irrelevant to the text as a whole. In a, lot of, in a lot of ways, Blade Runner has more in common with Ichiro in asking, uh, what does it mean to live um, a, a full human life than anything else? Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on the matter and whether if Deckard is a replicant matters or not, um, and your general thoughts on Ridley Scott. Uh, have a good day and uh, keep up the good work. Again, that was uh, Robert Reinecke, and um, it's, it's great to get uh, voicemail from him. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think before we can go any further with Blade Runner, we have to kind of deal with the unfortunate fact there are a million versions of Blade Runner. So let's uh let's sort of square up. Uh Jim, which version of Blade Runner did you watch? The director's cut. I was unable to acquire the final cut in time. But yeah, director's cut. All right, and Sean? Uh I opted for the original theatrical cut. This Interesting. Time. Cool. <laughs> I, 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 I had actually never seen the theatrical cut as far as I can remember. Um but I'd seen the director's cut a couple times, and I'd seen the final cut once. So I thought, all right, I should probably get it all, you know, get get every experience possible here. Nice. That is uh, that's interesting. I saw the final cut, so uh, we literally are going to be sort of talking about three different movies. I don't um, know if there's that drastic of differences, other than the ending and narration. The maybe I think the I think the theatrical cut is drastically different. Oh, okay. Um. If I if I know if I understand correctly, I've I've only seen the director's cut and final cut, and I saw them so far apart that I couldn't tell you the the differences. Um, I'm sure there'll be a the director's f- club cut of Blade Runner soon. So yeah, we'll we'll reenact yeah. the entire movie. Oh God, that'd be <laughs> horrible. <laughs> that'd be the worst thing. Um, okay, so. Because uh, I, 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 first time I saw this, uh, I think the first time I saw this is actually like Sci-Fi Channel, and I it was probably director's cut. They may have played the theatrical cut. I can't recall, but I wasn't. I was too young, and I wasn't really paying attention to it, so I don't really count that. Um, the first time I saw it proper was on a DVD of the director's cut, and I was just bored out of my mind. Um, I, w- I was told, "Oh, this is the best sci-fi movie. It's it's such a it's a noir," and I'm like, "Oh, this should be sort of interesting." And while the sort of premise of it uh, fascinated me, I was just bored out of my mind uh, by the approach, which is, you know, glacially paced and heavily, you know, based in, as Robert pointed out, you know, tone and uh, sort of ideas as opposed to an actual kind of thriller, noir kind of plot. Um, This time I sort of had a mixed reaction between really liking it and sort of feeling the same way. I actually feel that, you know, in in watching a lot of Ridley Scott movies over the past uh, couple of weeks, I felt like one of the, uh, Ridley's, you know, sort of best qualities is he creates these sort of very believable, 
worlds that are just very grounded and you just immediately buy um, whether it's sort of the way he shoots, you know, Florence and Hannibal or the, the sort of blue collar spaceship of alien, or, you know, obviously the, the world in uh, blade runner is unparalleled as far as sci-fi movie goes. Um, but I think the problem is that actually doesn't match this film because the film is just sort of this meditation on it's not about like Deckard as a character is so blank and so subdued and and uh and and it's and it's not you know it's not a quick moving plot it's not a it's not a lot it doesn't have a lot of twists and turns it's not exciting to watch Deckard sort of you know uncover clues there's actually only one bit where he sort of where he literally just pulls the what's now sort of cliche in CSI the enhance sort of routine with a photograph like that's pretty much uh, the only real bit of sort of outside the box detective work we see him do. Other than that, he's just sort of going from location to location. And what 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 this movie actually excels at is sort of having this hopeless tone and feeling like completely lifeless and and you know and and just so full of despair. And I think the problem with that is I think the world is so real that it almost works counter. I feel if this maybe this film was a little more surreal and a little more about the tone and and it felt a little more dreamy and more nightmarish, it would actually work wonders. And I'd, I'd like it a lot more. Um, not of course that it doesn't have its uh, it doesn't have its merits, but I would say that yeah, like Ridley's chief advantage, like this is probably the best world he's ever built, and that actually ends mm-hmm. up hurting the film. I would agree overall with that. With with that statement, and I think uh, in terms of Ridley Scott, I, his visual aesthetics, his you know universe building, he's a strong director when it comes to eye popping <laughs> eye candy, and you know I mean I don't he not doesn't necessarily you know bypass you know strong storytelling, but I don't think that's his main goal or that's where he chooses to place emphasis. I think even at one point I heard. On another podcast, like on a commentary, he even said that he doesn't work well with actors. Like, he doesn't necessarily collaborate in ways that other directors have. That he is very focused on uh, detail and composition. And as far as Blade Runner goes, uh, I was eagerly anticipating it based on all the acclaim it's gotten over the years, including many peers and podcasters that I respect who put it up there as you know, one of the all-time great science fiction movies. I first saw it, too, when I was kind of young, and I didn't quite get it, and I fell asleep halfway through. And I do like it more uh, for kind of very simple reasons, like, you know, the uh, cinematography, the production design, the overall mood, and again, just the world that Ridley Scott creates here feels very real. Um, and there's there's obviously a reason that this... You know, movie went on to influence a lot of great films like The Matrix or Dark City because it's really gorgeous and dreamlike and it's very unique. Um, but I just felt a. Sw- I would go as far as say even something like Brazil. Just, yeah, definitely it feels, Brazil. It feels mm-hmm. retrofitted, you know, like Brazil does. Where well, whereas Brazil feels really zany and I feel like it, it allows me to connect connect more with uh, the lead character. This sort of has the opposite effect for me. I feel a slight disconnect because we're following kind of a, a lifeless character throughout most of it, um, you know. And I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say that this is 
style over substance at all because I think there is substance here, but it does feel a little bit buried, and I didn't have like the same drive to get out my shovel <laughs> to uncover <laughs> the uh, the layers here. I mean, I and that's you know surprising because I enjoy cerebral films and. You know, I, and I realize that most film noir protagonists are typically stoic and kind of lost in their own head most of the time. Uh, so, I mean, the int- intent maybe is to sort of present a detached character, you know, for, for good purposes. Um, and I also think that the, that the ideas, the themes, the philosophy don't actively engage the audience in a way that is kind of, uh, you know, easy to grasp on a first viewing. So I am open to you know, a rewatch in hopes that maybe those ideas will sink in a little bit more and allow me to appreciate it. Because I think just the question of what is it that makes us human is one of the more universal ones that has been explored throughout science fiction. But um, it just didn't intellectually stimulate me in a way I was hoping for, despite, you know, admiring it a lot more than I did when I was young. So, um, yeah. Sean, what are your thoughts on Blade Runner? Very curious. Well, I'd love to be the guy who's going to come in and be like, you know, I love Blade Runner and you guys are totally wrong, but I have a pretty similar experience to you guys. I actually, I mean, I've seen the movie probably four or five times now. And I have to admit, like, okay, the first two times I watched it, it was probably on DVD. I'm pretty sure it was the director's cut. And I'm pretty sure I fell asleep halfway through. (laughs) And, you know, at the time, I was a guy who was into science fiction. I was into cyberpunk. I was like, you know what? This is a movie I should like. What, what's the deal? Why do I keep falling asleep? What's the problem here? And, but, you know, slowly I've been, you know, rewatching it. And obviously when the final cut came out, rewatched it again. And every time I rewatch it, it does get better. And I do appreciate it more. Uh, but I still don't know that I'm at the point where I love it. Uh, and I don't know if it's interesting we have that voicemail. I don't know if maybe part of it has has to come from having seen it at the time when it was so absolutely unlike anything else. And, you know, just the fact that it has since influenced so many other things that when you go back and watch it now, you know, maybe it just doesn't have quite that same impact. Um, but you know, the thing that I really like, I agree that the pacing is ridiculously slow and it really just pulls you in and then you just zone out. Like, you know, you have to really focus to actually not fall asleep during this movie. Uh, but the interesting thing is the more I think about it, the more I watch it, like that's kind of what one of the things that makes it great in a way, like it really is, I mean, it's based on a book called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. There is a dream sequence in the director's cut and not in the theatrical cut, I believe, the the whole unicorn thing, right? Yeah. It's very uh, brief, but yeah. Right. So obviously dreams are a big part of, you know, the, the theme of the movie. I'm just not, I'm still not sure I quite grasp how it all fits together and why it works the way it does. But I think, it, you know, you look at it and you think it should be an action movie. It should be, you know, a film noir. It should be a mystery or thriller. And it never really delivers on any of those things. But I think, you know, it is, it does work as a mood piece. It does just kind of feel like a dream. And again, you know, the vision of the future is amazing. Um, But, you know, just that idea of like, you know, 
uh, I guess, if, if robots or, uh, you know, replicants, you know, weren't that different from humans, you know, would, would we share dreams? And, and, you know, what, you know, where would the, the dividing line be between human and, you know, a robot that can basically do all the same things that humans can do? And, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I just, I think it's, it's there for you to, to ponder, but I, you know, it doesn't explicitly throw it in your face, right? Yeah. Do you, do you, now, do you guys think that maybe, uh, part of the big disconnect is at least, because I think this is sort of part of it for me, is that it's Harrison Ford playing Deckard, Hmm. who's, who is just, when you think of Harrison Ford in that, around that time, you know, in the late seventies and the, you know, and then the eighties, you think of Han Solo, you think of Indiana Jones, who are two of the most charismatic, gung ho, proactive kind of, yeah. Like this is such a strange role for him, and it's and I don't think maybe it's ever discussed enough that how weird this role is. Like, I, I do kind of perk up not, when he has that like Sam Spade kind of acting bit when he confronts that one replicant oh, in when, her when dressing he sort room. Of starts, when he starts playing Faye, like he, yeah, like he's like he's gay and he's <laughs> yeah, like at that point you're like, and that's and. And you then, you know that maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that like Ridley teases you with one moment where where he is sort of being like very energetic, and he has that great smile, and you're like, oh, that's Harrison Ford. I love that guy. And maybe the point is because uh, I'm still I'm sort of chewing the film. You know, it's 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 certainly a lot to work with, and it's I'm sort of still working on it, but like. Maybe the point is the second you see Harrison Ford and he is so out of energy, it's just like, what happened? Like, <laughs> you, like, like it's supposed to feel wrong, maybe. Well, I think there's a few things going on. I mean, like, for one, there is that feel of, like, this urban sprawl that has just been completely, you know, fallen apart and just it's just depressing and it's beat everyone down and. I, there's definitely that vibe there, but I think also part of it is, you know, getting to the question of like, is Deckard a replicant or isn't he? Um, I think it was probably intentional that he really doesn't show a ton of emotion throughout the film. You know, he's pretty subdued um, because, you know, it just works better that way in terms of like, is he or isn't he right? Mm-hmm. That ambiguity, uh, which uh, again, I do like ambiguity, and I do like dream-like movies. We brought up Three Women, and I'm kind of a fan of David Lynch, but here it does feel like you know an intentional subversion of either film noir or science fiction in a way that does play with your expectations um, as you're watching it. And I guess casting Harrison Ford kind of fits that criteria a little bit. Um, I just don't get as much pleasure out of the whole experience because it is very downplayed and uh, yeah I agree with you like as I was watching it this time I was thinking to myself you know what this is great but this is not a movie I can ever see myself just throwing on because I'm like I really want to just enjoy Blade Runner you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it's that kind of movie and but I it, mean and oh, I'm sorry go ahead no, I was just going to say, like, I mean, there's there's so much to like about it, so much to appreciate about it, but it just isn't, you know, a movie that you throw on for the thrills. And I, but I, and I, and I, I mean, I completely agree, and that's part of why it was so, you know, so just 
disappointing. I wouldn't even say disappointing, but just so sort of grueling to get through again. But it was just at the same time, I wouldn't say that I would throw on, uh, you know, uh, the seventh seal, you know, as uh, to just sort of chill out and relax. Like there's a lot of Bergman films that are sort of meditations on mortality that I wouldn't. I mean, uh, I don't. And again, I think it's just. There's this thing where movies teach you, you know, a good movie will teach you early on how to watch it and what uh, and sort of adjust. It should adjust you, you know, and if it doesn't adjust you, there needs to be a point because otherwise it's just very jarring. And I think that maybe there's just so many levels of disconnect between this is an 80s sci-fi movie with with Han Solo in it. And it's a guy from the guy who made Alien and the special effects are astounding and the world's so great. That it's just that's a lot of hurdles to overcome to get to the point where you go, but this movie is actually, uh, you know, this movie is actually cries and whispers. This is actually like a really upsetting uh, sort of tonal piece. Um, I think that's just so many expectations that it subverts at once that mm-hmm. it actually ends up hurting the film. Um, now, okay, I, I it's funny that the conversation has become. I mean, I guess with a film with a history like this that is such so considered a masterpiece, but at the same time has had such a you know storied past and so many different versions, and only you know only in the past couple of years it's been set straight with the final cut uh, and the you know and the big box set that sort of has every cut packaged together and all those documentaries about sort of what happened. Um, but it is surprising to me as I watch the film that the conversation is, is Deckard a replicant? Because it just seems to not matter and it seems like the point is that it doesn't matter. The, the, right. I agree. Because there's not, there's not a lot of clues that uh, that Deckard is a replicant. It's not like throughout the film it teases or, or it's not like a thing you're constantly questioning. It's only at the end when you see the little paper unicorn um, that you sort of – begin to it dawn on you so um is yeah the, i mean it, it does that, dawn on me a little bit i mean i guess just because i'm watching it knowing that that is the question you know well, right be- right and but i'm saying like, as far as things actually in the film it doesn't even toy around with the idea until the end and rachel sort of asks him if he's ever taking that uh empathy test right but that could mean so many things like yeah. that that doesn't necessarily, you know, in in that in the context of that scene, I read that as um, what is different between me and you, not aren't you me? Right. Like, mm-hmm. which again is a, is a small, but I think it's important difference. Um, but I think maybe the point of it is at the end. Only so at the end. I mean, there's one other sort of clue that I caught, and maybe there's more that I'm just not catching, but which is that um, the toy maker and along all of the things he has, he has a unicorn. Uh, um, but other than that, like it's not a question that comes up. It's not something that we see Deckard wrestling with. Um, we certainly see him sort of just being haunted by all of these. You know, he clearly doesn't think of these as just shutting down a machine. He's clearly views this as murder. But I don't think that I don't think it's necessarily read as guilt. You know, like oh, I'm my fellow right. replicant. Like, so do you think now in the in the theatrical version, how is how is the ending different in the theatrical version? Yeah, the ending is really weird, actually. It, it kind of uh, just has, like, Rachel and uh, Deckard, like, driving off into the sunset almost. 
like, and it doesn't really uh, that I can think of now even address that question. Like it just kind of is left like, you know, I, I don't even think you would think watching the theatrical version that he is a replicant as far as I can tell. Um, but yeah, it's weird because I have at, at some point I read the, the actual book, do androids dream of electric sheep. And, uh, I think I had actually read it before I even saw Blade Runner for the first time. Hmm. So there's a lot of stuff in the book that I actually really like that isn't in the movie, which could have also been a little bit why maybe the first couple times it didn't, I was a little disappointed or whatever. Uh, But one of the things in the book, if I remember correctly, I think there's a scene where they take him to a police station or something and they do actually interrogate him and give him the test. And And it really sets up like the idea of like, is he or isn't he? Uh, a replicant. I've heard that he is in the book. I don't know if it explicitly spells it out necessarily, but um, a couple of other people have discussed it, have brought up the point that he is in the book, but Ridley Scott, his intention was to sort of make it more ambiguous because it really isn't about that per se, you know? Yeah, well, see, that's interesting because I've heard that Ridley Scott has come fl- out and flat out said in my version, he is a replicant. Hmm. Like, even though he does, in the director's cut and the final cut, leave it ambiguous, which I I personally think that's the best way to do it, it does kind of bug me that he has said in interviews that, yes, he is a replicant. Like, why would you say that? Well, maybe it's both. Maybe it's like Schrodinger's cat, you know? It's like, it's... it's, (laughs) He is and he isn't at this point. We've got two parallel universes going. No, I mean, yeah. Yeah, um, but, like, what would you... Okay, so the movie is about sort of the idea that, you know... Uh, it's. I mean, it's mostly a rumination on mortality. The The weight of every death, mm-hmm. every every replicant he kills is so heavy that, like, the movie literally has to take a 15-minute break after he kills one, which, you know, in any other... I mean the you know the poster has you know has spaceships and it has him holding a gun. You expect it's going to be all right. He's going to be you know shooting up shooting up robots and stuff. But no, like he kills one. You know, there's I can't think of any other sort of character in any kind of noir who takes a death so heavily. Um, now, what is it that because um, in the beginning of the film he is at least the beginning of the final cut. He's approached on the street and he says, no, I'm out. And they they say, oh, but you can't be out because – and then I never quite got – what is it they're holding over his head that, that makes Deckard have to cooperate and kill these uh, replicants? Hmm. That I'm not sure about. Yeah, I'm is, not – Is it made clear or did I miss something or a line or something? Because there's a definite point in the office where he goes, I was out before and now I'm doubly out. And then – the next, you know, the next scene shows him sort of, you know, looking through the evidence and trying to figure out the case. So he's on it. Like, yeah, I just kind of got the impression that like his uh, his superiors or, or I guess actually the uh, the company that makes the replicants or something somehow has some sort of uh, authority over him for some reason. But I could be way off on that. I, yeah, I was a little confused as well. I would agree. I. Again, it could be a question of, you know, just his free will or, you know, feeling drawn towards 
you know, what he's used to doing in the past. But I, I, I don't like. I will say the fact that he, the idea that he's a replicant seems far fetched. Because number one, why would I mean? There's would that mean he's the only replicant allowed on Earth? It's him, and then all the other like. So they made one replicant to do it, and then how long? Like that just seems. I mean. I mean, to be fair, the whole idea of replicants is ridiculous that they would make humans so – like that they would make androids um, that, you know, could sneak on and sort of become – and sort of integrate themselves into humans and you had to do this complicated empathy test. <laughs> uh, why wouldn't they just like make the humans green? You know, like, oh, no, those aren't <laughs> humans because they're green. Like, like, and the idea that, oh, well, we, we create these, you know, highly sophisticated, you know, robots – for slave work like you know well i guess that a little bit going into prometheus is just how you know at one point uh you know david asks why did you make us and then that that guy says well because we can and that sort of idea of technology I becoming would, dehumanizing in some way i think I, it's but there I would, I would not i would not i wouldn't quote i would not quote prometheus as far as justify as far as plots that justify <laughs> Well, their no. science fiction setup because I, it makes just as little sense. I mean, no, I why? agree because because the question that that David and Prometheus asks is a lot wider. When when he's he's asking why are human beings created, you know, driven to create, you know, their likeness. Whereas this is where the question I'm asking is why are human? Why does this company, um, you know, spend surely so much money on these exact humans that even bleed for? for no discernible reason um if only if it's for four years of slave labor as far as i know i think it's i don't know if it's explicitly said but i think it was just the idea of well there are some you know uh jobs and chores out there that humans refuse to do and so they create these replicants but that is a you know obvious sort of like puzzlement to uh, the, make them that the, real or that all human the kinds of yeah I'm, I'm yeah that's what I'm saying like of all the machines that you could make to do jobs in dangerous locations of all the sort of unmanned submarines that we've made and stuff we haven't made any unmanned submarines that look like a guy scuba diving you know <laughs> so just to clear up the earlier question uh, well it doesn't really clear it up but I looked on Wik- Wikipedia here and it says uh, with regards to why Deckard agrees to take the job or whatever it says deckard refuses but after brian makes a veiled threat he reluctantly agrees okay hmm. so it is amb- so it is just it's never said ex- it's just an ambiguous threat yeah i guess so okay that's All fine right, so that's, yeah that. that's that's yeah. what i got out of that mm-hmm. so, i mean but- i i can pretty much follow and- the story but it just didn't necessarily excite me despite getting kind of a thrill out of uh redker howard's performance man i think I think he's pretty spectacular. Well, here's, the other, here's the other question, because I was just on the Wikipedia page uh, entry for uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And it says that, you know, unlike humans, it says the androids possess no empathetic sense. But that's hmm. not true uh, in the movie. The replicants seem to have the same... Like Did the they just evolve, I guess? I thought it was just... Um, uh, uh, what's her name? Rachel. I thought it was just yeah. Rachel. I thought she was just the special one that had that. Uh, I see. Emotional empathy and thinks yeah. she's a. But uh, but at the end, uh, but that's what I'm at the end. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Rutger Hauer clearly dis- displays empathy by saving Harrison Ford. 
Yeah, that's true. And again, it's more sort of ambiguity there, I guess, to, to make you think, you know, what what's the difference between us and them and True. And it's, is Deckard a replicant and he's just saving a replicant or I don't know. But actually, uh, while you guys were just talking about Prometheus there, I was thinking about uh, there are some interesting similarities between these two movies because the whole idea that uh, Rutger Hauer's character wants to meet his maker yeah. and basically ask him for more life. I mean, exactly. It's, it's really uh, strange. Like, it seems to me like Damon Lindelof watched Blade Runner before <laughs> writing the script and was like, hey, Ridley, we should uh, you know, get some Blade Runner in here or something. And I, and I would honestly say that if the movie was... And if I would honestly say both movies suffer from almost being divided between... You know, if it was just Rucker, the story of Rucker Hauer's journey and Rucker Hauer sort of being this... Uh, being this replicant who's this fugitive who is trying to prove that he is just as human as anyone else but at the same time in order to get what he wants he has to do cruel things like and and when he gets to when he gets to finally meet god he god just tells him no there's no way like that is a compelling story on its own and would have made a and the same with like deckard is this sort of ambiguous person who's sort of lost in this sort of nightmare of regret and doubt and in this just oppressive world like that is a compelling story on its own but yeah, uh, that sounds a the lot way better. they sort of, the, but the way they blend together, it just feels like two separate movies that collide at the end, um, and that's almost like I would say a lot of complaints against Prometheus have been about sort of how it's how the tonal shifts and everything are so drastic and how divided it feels between trying to be a monster movie and trying to be a movie, you know, closer to two thousand one or something. I think the character actions in Blade Runner seem a little bit more consistent. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and I'm it not... seems less sloppy. I, I mean, it's interesting, though. I, I, I think uh, between two different versions, I could be mistaken about this, but they changed one word when he does meet his maker, um, Rutger Hauer's character, because I think in the version I saw, he's like, I've come for more life, fucker. And in another version... <laughs> really? It says fucker? Because yeah. in Final Cut, it's father. That's what I was going to say, yeah. I think that's yeah. kind of crazy. <laughs> like a weird... I Because I, I, I found that to be like a jarring use of that word it just seemed strange to me <laughs> yeah and on when they play it on tv he says i've come for more life mr falcon <laughs> <laughs> nice. um no so i mean and again this is a movie that i'm sort of still chewing and you know like sean Same. pointed out how he sort of um not necessarily enjoys the experience more but definitely likes the movie more every time he watches it this is a movie that I'm sort of looking forward to, you know, further exploring because it's. I mean, and one of the chief reasons I'd say that I kind of it that sort of my initial assertion that Ridley, the fact that Ridley Scott grounds it in such a realistic future, kind of works against him is because what to me is clearly the best sequence of the whole film is that insane and brutal hallucinatory sort of climactic fight in the warehouse yeah. slash mansion slash abandoned building like at that like if you just had a film uh that just started and ended there like that would just be a hell of a short film it's just it works completely on its own even without sort of context and it's it's so chilling to see Harrison Ford just you know who's just so passionless and sort of unemotive throughout the whole film, just be fucking scared out of his mind um, during that fight. 
mm-hmm. uh, that is so just brutal and scary and weird and nightmarish. And there's like Rucker Hauer is doing all these things that you can't like you don't understand. You're like when he got a hit in the head, is his programming going out of whack? Why is he sticking a nail through his hand? Like, well, I guess that's to use some Christ-like imagery, maybe. <laughs> like the spike going through his hand. <laughs> yeah. So is it Rutger Hauer's character decides to impose Christ-like imagery into his own life, or is it just a clumsy thing that it's probably a Ridley's clumsy thing? Because <laughs> it's it's just so strange. And then he's holding that dove the whole time. The dove is just like very calm. Like that is a nightmare. That whole sequence, and it's incredible. I love it. If, I love that moment. That's like where if, I was really engaged with it. And if the whole film could have. I mean, obviously not that level, but if a whole film could have captured that kind of approach where you're not exactly sure what's happening, like if it was, you know, almost, you know, more surreal, more Lynchian almost, but it was still in this kind of futuristic world, like it would easily be one of my favorite films ever. Yeah. And I know that some people gravitate towards, you know, that and, you know, finding these incredible, you know, uh, themes in it that I'm sure have many essays written about. And I know that Kurt Halfyard is like, you know, this is one of his favorite science fiction movies. And he sort of found correlations between this and Code 46 because it's pretty much all about just how, uh, you know, disassociated and alienated we are and sort of the consequences of that to where we don't really know, you know, our own humanity anymore. But I don't – okay, here's one thing that Kurt, Kurt brought up that, again, uh, it's a film that I want to keep rewatching. So I, I would definitely not say that I can dispute it wholly or even yeah, say I that Yeah, I feel the same way and that's, but, that's how I feel. But um, Kurt sort of – as I understand, Kurt sort of – his assertion is that it's about sort of all of these people who have been betrayed by technology. Mm-hmm. And I don't – like to me – the idea that of technology is actually kind of subdued in this movie. It's not, it's not something that is, you know, like to me, it's like the, the main feeling behind it is not about the technology. It's about the mortality. You know what I mean? Like it's about death. And to me, and what the, I mean, what the the difference is, is when you have a sci-fi movie that is sort of warning against technology, like, I don't see any connection between the technology presented in in this film and the technology of 1982 or or the technology of uh you know um 1968 when the book was first came out as far as dehumanizing people. So I don't think that's the thrust of the story. What I do think is it is a context in which you can explore other ideas about death and stuff. So I and maybe I'm misinterpreting Kurt and he doesn't have a chance he's not you know he's not on here to defend or elaborate so I apologize but um whereas I don't feel this is sort of a warning movie a movie that's warning against you know technology going too far or being mm-hmm. dehumanized I would agree with that I would I would say it's a movie that uses ideas of technology to explore other like unrelated of death and mortality yeah. Oh, Sean, you're cutting, yeah. you're cutting out a little bit there. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. Uh, like a lot of those kinds of movies where, you know, you're, 
your uh, warning about technology and stuff like that, they usually come across as very cold and, um, you know, they can play out as horror movies and stuff like that. And I don't think Blade Runner falls into that category. Like, it does almost feel like a look at where we're headed, you know what I mean? Like, humans and technology are merging and this is what's going to happen. Like, there's a lot more humanity in this film. Uh, as as much as Harrison Ford is subdued and robotic and all that kind of stuff, like I, I, I would agree that it's it feels a lot more about life and, and what it means to be human than it does about technology and what technology is doing to us. Right, yeah. yeah it I, seems it, like an integration of all of that. Because again, in 1968, computers were not a part of daily life. Like, what was the, you know, that's not... I don't feel that's what Philip K. Dick was exploring. And in 1982, like if this movie came out today, because I I was actually, I was talking to my friend about this, like we do live in a cyberpunk reality. I don't even, you know, I don't even have a smartphone, but the second that I connected Twitter to my phone and I was able to, to tweet from anywhere, like suddenly the internet was no longer in this box in my room. It was everywhere. And the internet and reality became the same thing. So like if, if this kind of movie is made today, I'm sure that it would be about that. And would it be about how, you know, are we serving our computers by just like sort of compulsively going onto Facebook and Twitter and email and stuff, or, you know, are we being assimilated by it? But that doesn't seem like the kind of environment that produced the film back in 1982. Well, this is why the, uh, the prospect of a Blade Runner sequel, which apparently we're getting is kind of a scary one, but Uh also, I'm scared because I just know it's all going to be CGI. And mm-hmm. I mean, what makes this movie so grounded is the fact that there's so many sets and there's just garbage and it's dirty. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that you know Ridley Scott would necessarily even change uh, the world greatly, but I just feel like um, just the limitations of what a camera can do and how it can shoot a set are not there with CGI and then that make that changes the way a world looks, you know? Uh, so I'm not, I think Blade melding of, you know, optical effects, but not digital effects and into, to create this and, you know, set building and, you know, these ideas and these, these sort of aesthetics and everything, this sort of, uh, you know, yellow, yellow fear almost that you'd see that you'll see later in, you know, a movie like black rain where, sort of ever we're now english is the second language of america and japanese is the first like that to me is what creates a world not necessarily but then again i've i've i'm sure you know listeners of this podcast know i'm nothing if not a little overly negative on cg cgi and the worlds it creates so maybe it'll be interesting but i don't know Promethe- i'm not i'm i'm such a not fan of Prometheus that the idea of Ridley returning to any more of his properties kind of bugs me. <laughs> I'm with you there, Patrick. I, I think that my overall f- feeling of, of Blade Runner is that I, I, I so appreciate the, just this, uh, you know, the, the sort of incorporating like this locus of kind of like morality in, in a science fiction meets film noir world, you know, and just presenting, you know, a, a the uh, you know the obvious sort of protagonist that you expect in a film noir is the lone detective who's you know rummaging through morality and seeing this decaying society and 
feeling disassociated and to the point where you, 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 you can't tell the difference between the, the human and the inhuman. And I think that there is a lot going on that uh, you know I gravitate towards because I am, I am a fan of Philip K. Dick. And I think that uh, I, like, I like his style. I like his storytelling. I, but I also think that Ridley Scott's, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily like over-directed it to the point where those ideas don't, you know, fully, you know, hit you on a first viewing. I think they're there. And I think that maybe this is just one of those movies that demands rewatches because even, you know, even a guy like Ebert, he kind of dismissed it the first time he saw it. And then after the, you know, the final cut, he sort of came around to it. So there is, I'm open to the possibility of that experience over time, grasping and sort of, you know, thinking more and more about the movie because, uh, it, it has a lot going for it, and it's not necessarily a completely empty experience like I sort of... My first impression was, this is kind of an empty film, and I don't think that's the case, because there's... After it was over, after I you know went to bed and slept on it, basically, I woke up thinking more about it, and I think that's a sign of you know a good movie, is that if it, if it's, if it, you know, it's, it manages to spark some of those thoughts... And wanting to explore how other people interpret the movie, then that's that's a good thing. I mean, it's not something I am eager to rewatch, but I will for sure. Yeah, for me, it's kind of uh, you know, like I, I I still don't feel that I'm uh, you know 100% grasping everything I need to grasp about the film, but I'm comfortable at this point saying that I really like it a lot. And there, there is substance to it, you know, aside from just the amazing visuals. I mean, I, I think that's enough to love the film, to be honest with you. But I, I think there's a lot to it. I think I'm appreciating more and more every time I watch it. I'm sure I will watch it more in the future. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I still think it's it definitely is, you know, one of his top films, Ridley Scott's. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he'll ever quite get back to making the same kind of groundbreaking stuff, but... Uh, who can yeah. really, you know? Right. Yeah. He's uh, how old is he now? He is uh, seventy-five years old. So, you know, it's it's uh, he he put in his time as far <laughs> yeah. as yeah. Maybe someone should retire him. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible joke. Anyway, um, that I can always edit out if I want because I have yeah. full control. So let's uh, move uh, right along to uh, the Oscar-winning film from 2000, Gladiator. Who is he? Will you move your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Gladiator. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. Today I saw a slave become more powerful than the Emperor of Rome. They said you were a giant. I shall cheer for you. At my signal, unleash hell. Am I what we do in life echoes in eternity. Well, now let's talk about something completely different. So after a slight 
three-year absence from behind the camera for Ridley Scott, he decided to tackle a story surrounding the Roman Empire in the year 180 A.D. Gladiator is the kind of movie upon which Hollywood once built its reputation on, but rarely kind of produces anymore, and that's the audience-pleasing spectacle. Filled with larger-than-life characters, gorgeous scenery, impressive set design, and simple storytelling that was Shakespearean in theme. The hero here is a general from Spain named Maximus, who is a favorite of the dying emperor. After Maximus defeats the barbarians, Marcus names him protector of Rome, but he is left for dead by Marcus's son, a bitter rival named Commodus. After escaping and finding that his wife and son have been murdered, Maximus finds his way to the deserts of North Africa, where he is sold as a slave to a manager of gladiators. And when Commodus lifts his late father's ban on gladiators in Rome in an attempt to distract the people from hunger and plagues, Maximus slashes his way to the top. And, of course, the movie ends with a rousing confrontation between good versus evil. So, I first saw Gladiator in theaters with a crowd that pretty much ate it up from beginning to end, and uh, at the time, I was okay with it. I really, I, I, I was more on the positive side of the fence with this one, and normally this isn't my kind of film at all. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the sword and sandal era epics, you know, that are quite long, that take place in this kind of environment which may be why I continue to put off watching Game of Thrones, although I hear it's a different version of that era, um, and I'm still open to the idea that it kicks ass, like everyone says. But, um, And I think that uh, upon a rewatch, uh, Gladiator holds up uh, just slightly for me, because there are things, again, about it that I like, particularly the performances. Um, I think the pacing's pretty good. I do like the uh, the graphic battles, but I know that you know they aren't necessarily filmed in a very coherent way. I guess I just have this kind of ingrained Rocky-like response for when things get brutal and intense, and I feel like cheering along with the crowd, probably because maybe I'm a sadist or something. Who knows? <laughs> but as far as getting fully involved with the plot, I don't necessarily gravitate towards this kind of operatic... Shakespearean dialogue. Um, but I, I get some joy out of the movie. Just like surface level stuff again here, including Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is awesome in this and his facial, really res- his facial responses to the gladiator fights. Um, I don't know if those are, you know, <laughs> I think they're intentionally funny and I, they make me laugh. Um, I like just the underdog rises to the top kind of, convention and uh i i do agree that some of the you know the, the the cinematography here is very muddy and indistinctive and it doesn't always make for you know easy to follow uh action sequences but um i don't know i just maybe it's a guilty pleasure and i certainly don't get excited about rewatching this one as much uh, and I don't think it's a timeless classic like some of the uh, you know Spartacus films or the, uh, the other things it's trying to evoke at all. I don't think it pro- was probably. I mean, I know I'm pretty sure 2000 was a pretty weak year for films in general, but um, I think something like Traffic or Crouching Tiger was probably better. But 
I don't know. I, I don't I don't dislike this movie, but I'm definitely more in the middle on it overall. It barely gets a pass from me. It's weird that you say that you like that sort of underdog story, because I think for me, one of the chief problems of this movie is that ostensibly, like, it's not like it's a big dumb movie and it's not a good story of Rome. So like all the stuff behind the scenes about the senators, like I don't think any of that really goes anywhere interesting. No, it doesn't. So so ostensibly the chief delights of the film should be that the gladiator sequences, the battles, but like what kind of rods a lot of the tension and stuff out of them is that uh you know Russell Crowe chooses to play Maximus as this sort of completely cocksure uh and and stoic person where it's the point where like at no point did i ever fear for maximus like Patrick, even when are, are you not entertained yeah 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 i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing i wasn't in the th- it's a good thing i wasn't in the theater then because if i was i'm not if i was feeling you would have given it a big thumbs down yeah i would have just shouted back no i'm not because like he it there it's a foregone conclusion every time he steps into the ring that he's going to win like even the part where they're like oh it's going to be a slaughter at no point do you ever see anything resembling fear so you go <laughs> oh maximus has a plan and then maximus does have a plan and it's just like he barely even gets cut anywhere so those weren't but i mean it's funny you say that though because he, he well are we doing spoilers here because, oh yeah definitely. Uh, no yeah yeah, yeah uh, our, our by the way our uh our our I mean we obviously spoiled uh, you know Blade Runner in many different formats but uh, um, yeah. our rule our rule on the show is that if it's over two years old then we're going to spoil it. Okay, well, you know I was just going to say like Maximus dies at the end, so obviously you know there is the possibility that something could happen to him. You know what I mean? Like, but like that he gets stabbed in the chest before the sh- so even that match is a foregone. You go okay, this is going to be the one where he finally gets his revenge, but then dies because he's been because he's bleeding to death. So like the point is, there's no tension of what will happen or how will he do it because. Because it's a foregone conclusion every time he steps in the ring, even in even in the end, it's a foregone conclusion that he will die. But you know, it's not. It's not. You know, the film won't end with him dying and Joaquin Phoenix going "welp," and then the cuts to credits. <laughs> like, well, I mean, yeah. As far as the kind of movie it is, you kind of know basically what's going to happen. But I mean, I well, okay. Just to put everything in perspective, like I saw the movie in theaters, liked it quite a bit. Uh, and actually, I mean, th- when I saw this movie, I was kind of like, this was when I was like, oh, Ridley Scott, man, where's he been, you know? And and uh, and then I started really kind of becoming a fan of Ridley Scott at this point and realizing, oh, this guy's directed a lot of movies I like. And, um, and you know, then there was you know, one best picture, and I feel like somewhere in there, there was a bit of a backlash, people saying like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a, a big sort of action movie it didn't really it was good but it didn't actually deserve to win this picture and, and you know i hadn't actually watched it for a bunch of years now um but re-watching it i thought it was awesome i love gladiator and like i i actually was surprised how well it held up for me like i i think yeah there's a lot of uh broad strokes in the movie but um it is a crowd pleaser it is a lot of fun i think there's a lot of stuff uh, that's written actually really well. Like I, I love the uh, the scenes at the beginning 
with uh, Maximus and uh, John Hurt and, and talking about, you know, passing on uh, power and then, you know, the, the scene between John Hurt and Joaquin Phoenix where Joaquin Phoenix kills him. And, like, it is a little over the top, but I think, you know, the idea of it being Shakespearean and operatic, I think all that holds true. And I actually think Joaquin Phoenix is really good in this movie. Like, he has this creepy kind of, like... Obviously, there's the sort of the incest angle, which they don't really ever yeah. go actually commit to it. But it's there. It is creepy and weird and uncomfortable. Uh, but he also has that bratty, snotty, like, you know, son of a king kind of attitude. And I think he carries it well throughout the film. Like, he makes it a great villain. Um, I, I, I think, I think again, maybe... This has been a sort of a thing I've been sort of realizing about myself is sometimes I have a trouble dealing with a character I don't think is well written and a I mean discerning the difference between a character I don't think is well written and a performance being bad because I will agree Joaquin Phoenix does this character you know very just as he but like this character is so comically like there's nothing good about him like even which I think would say makes him a bad villain because. Like, he's not that smart, and he's not that good at fighting, and he's an asshole, and he's a coward, and he is sort of creepy watching his, you know, nephew sleep, and he is, you know, incestual, and he murders his father, (laughs) and he complains. Like, everything about him is just, all right, we get it. He's the bad guy. I'm not going to root for him. But what's crazy is, like, at a certain point, all of, like, he becomes, like, he is the underdog. Because he has nothing going for him. And at a certain point, I began to realize, like, that is actually a really compelling character. The king who wants to be loved, uh, but, but is such a fucking, like, is such a fuck up and does, so, and is so without talent that he, that just everyone hates him. And I began to wonder, like, I would maybe like this movie more if it was from his perspective, just because he's the only character I find, like, really interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. It's like after Rutger Hauer and Blade Runner, just sort of wondering what that movie would be like following him. Well, uh, I mean, I think they're very, very different characters. Oh, well, definitely. But yeah. But, like, it's it's such a, like, it's not like oh, you hate him so much because he's so conniving and he's such a genius and he keeps making all the, like, like everything he does is just wrong and, like, he's just uh, such a colossal fuck-up. Yeah, he does it so well. Like, that scene at the beginning, like, I find it, like, it is kind of heartbreaking. You feel for the guy, like, you know? Yeah. His, his father was not there for him and did not raise him to be, you know, a good person and you know he's basically getting screwed because he wants to be king he knows he can't do it and he's like fuck it i'm just gonna take it anyway and yeah there is that tone throughout the film of him wanting to be loved looking for somebody to to love him but you know you know it's not he can't he's not gonna find it so exactly uh, that's what makes him a more compelling character than maximus i'd say uh yeah who is just sort of an empty vessel of revenge mm-hmm and I think uh, even just that sort of archetype works well in you know in, in context with with just this kind of story and having things be not necessarily simplistic but just on the nose maybe I mean that's the dialogue is kind of operatic and on the nose at the same time and 
in spots. And there are certainly moments where I'm rolling my eyes because once again, when he finds his family dead, there's that score thing that drives me nuts. It's <laughs> crazy. Like I, it's crazy. I thought it was just a thing where it was like, oh, because I I did not finish, but I started watching Black Hawk Down, um, and it has that sort of score that the insider had yeah where it's just like middle eastern singing and i was like oh yeah because it's a modern war movie and it takes place i guess somewhere vaguely air like i don't know why there'd be middle eastern singing in africa which is where black or down or rome but like okay uh yeah and then in rome there's that weird singing in blade runner there is that weird singing like ridley scott really loves that just uh sort of yarbling enya like middle eastern <laughs> enya type of music in his movies i don't yeah, yeah, I, I will agree. That's one of the things I'm not the biggest fan of. But you know, it'd be and, really, and the, it'd be really funny if he managed to slip it into Thelma and Louise. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it just puts on that's in the jukebox, uh, and everyone's like, "Oh, <laughs> stop line dancing." <laughs> um, now, okay. So, do you like the action scenes in this, Sean? I do. Uh, I will say the opening scene where they're fighting the uh, Germanic tribes or whatever it is, I was actually shocked at how bad it looked. I was like, oh, this is not going to hold up at all. And like, I thought it was really like hard to follow. And it just I, I, I don't know what it was, but it just felt like there was a little bit of shaky cam here and there. And like it just looked horrible. Uh, but that was the only one I had a problem with. After that, like I thought all the actual arena fights were well done. And I mean, he does kind of use like, I'm pretty sure around this time, like there, there was like the saving private Ryan's kind of started popularizing like the shaky cam and all that kind of thing. And he's definitely using that here. Um, but I don't think it's ever, uh, too hard to follow what's going on. No, it, it never reaches Paul Greengear ass levels of, or Shaky what, or can. just modern day sort of levels, right? Although I don't have a problem with Paul Greengrass's use of it in most cases either. But um, yeah, I just I think uh, I don't know what it is about that first scene. Like, did you guys notice any difference between that yeah. and the others? Or uh, no, I would definitely. Well, number one, just the fact that that it's that the gladiator fights take place in an arena. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier to make out. Because I mean, you—it's a limited space, and you know what the you know what the arena looks like, so it's right. a lot easier for the geography to sort of make sense. Whereas this was like there's a forest, and then there's a clearing, and at some point people are coming out of the forest, and those are the bad guys, but those are the uh, the uh, barbarians or whatever. But then he's also coming out of the forest from maybe a different angle, and then it does that thing, which is I noticed a lot more in Hannibal. Uh, when I when I rewatch that, and it's just my least favorite thing ever. Yeah, I, just I'm that with you sort there. of um, there's this sort of low frame slow motion where everything's kind of blurry and where it's just right grainy. And I, I yeah, I looked it up, and apparently they're running out of daylight, so the cinematographer decided to, to in order it, in, to shoot the film uh, uh, faster, so uh, like to shoot the film at a lower frame rate because then, you know, your lighting requirements are a lot less because the, uh, because the film, because each frame is being exposed longer. Um, there's the little, there's the science behind that. So he was like, well, we can, Hmm. we can either delay a day or we could shoot the rest of the scene. 
uh, in with the lower frame rate and then just double it up in post-production. And that that's how you get that weird – it's this sort of – it's what I associate all the flashback sequences in CSI with now where it's just – um, or any kind of cold cases, any kind of one of those Jerry Bruckheimer procedurals where it'll flash to something and it'll be all blurry and it'll be low fr- like it just looks ugly and cheap and yeah. That- See, I thought that was something that he also got from Saving Private Ryan because didn't they do that in Saving Private Ryan? I don't recall. I have not seen that film in quite a long time. Yeah, but- it has been a while too. I think it's definitely in there. Um, I don't. I don't think consistently, but it's it's. I don't know where, like, how, why that has been chosen as you know the the uh, kind of the go-to cutaway, uh, or, or for flashbacks to showcase. Hey, this is a you know a, a flashback, or this is you know a different uh, moment of, of of the action sequence or something. But uh, I th- I don't know. I think uh, like there are. I agree with the with the opening fight that yeah, it's 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 kind of a mess and. It, it suffers from some of the same problems with, you know, like some of, uh, I wouldn't say Christopher Nolan's action sequences, but just just, just that, um, d- like, that you're just not sure where you are and why everything has to be, you know, so close up as opposed to getting a perspective at least once in a while of, you know, the, the action from a distance or to see, to just have a better sense of where you're at or where, you know, or the threat that the character is experiencing. Whereas, like, I do think that in in the arena, it does work very well. I think the uh, action sequence, or the or the battle, or the fight with the involving the tigers is like, I don't know, I'm still nail biting for me, man. I thought that was pretty intense. I think okay. Here's what I think my problem is. My problem is that what we know and what Maxim like before the gladiate before the fighting starts. What we know and what Maximus knows, but what other people don't know is that he is the Roman general. So he is very – like he's incredibly skilled at fighting and he's incredibly skilled at strategy. So you know he's going to have that edge going into it. But the problem is at no – like I guess it's – his strategy is never even clear with the battle of uh, whatever that they reenact. Like and it doesn't feel like – most of the most of the battles, it doesn't feel like he's using his ingenuity. It just feels like, oh, he once again is much better at swinging his sword than the other guy. Like, that I would well, say the most exciting sequence is the one where he teams up and he's like directing people. Yeah, and I would actually like more of that because, again, it's ex- you know part of how you make an exciting kind of sequence is you set it. You know, you go, oh, what's going to happen next? How is he going to get at it? Like, I know he will because he's the hero, but how will he do it? But if every single like sort of mono a mono fight he has, he just happens to be better at sword fighting. Like that's it's not too exciting uh, for me. I mean, I think the problem is that most gladiator fights were like one on one usually. So to you know, they did introduce a couple where he had other people working with him, and that was good. But I mean, you can't do that for all of them. I don't think. I, I honestly, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. Like, I don't think he ever feels like superhuman or anything like that like you understand that yeah he's got a lot of battle experience he's he's good at what he does and i think the thing is you don't ever know what the gladiators have up their sleeve like some of the guys are bigger than him and stuff like that like i you know yeah i know that he's probably gonna win but you know he might get hurt i don't know like i never really felt like he was completely invincible 
Yeah, I, maybe, and then maybe again. The other problem is that the fights were kind of again, other than the the one where he's coaching everybody, were kind of indistinguishable. Like where, like none of the other gladiators had any kind of that he was fighting had any kind of personality, you know. And uh, you know, we're told that. I, I yeah, I mean that's that's it. It's just like it's just another guy in a helmet. He's fighting, and but each helmet is different. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know what? Never mind. This is A plus. Didn't you, the, didn't yeah. you see the different I, I numbers do, on all the I, helmets? I do. I do agree that this is maybe a film that um, sort of similar. I think last year with the artist, where it was a like it's sort of an enjoyable crowd pleaser that somehow roped people into thinking it was important and it won Best Picture. I just don't um, think people were then, used to seeing something like this for so long. And it does, and it does sort of have a more serious tone than maybe the last time they've seen something like this. But and there uh, were a lot of kind of co- not copycats, but it spawned. You know, uh, certainly we wouldn't have had like three hundred and stuff or Troy things like that if without Gladiator. And I think when you look at something like Troy, I don't know if you guys are fans of that movie or not. Like, I don't hate it, but I think that movie shows where you can take sort of a sword and sandals thing. And, and if the writing's not quite as strong and the performances aren't quite as strong, like it, it, it feels a little cheesy at points. Whereas mm-hmm. I think Gladiator, you really feel that it's about as good as this kind of movie can be. I don't, I, I thought this movie felt really cheesy when he's when when he you know when he sees his dead family. He's like no, like in slow motion <laughs> with the with the warbling like singer and. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of again, just the hammering home again and again. Like, man, that Joaquin Phoenix's character, what an ass! Like, like I thought, I thought this felt pretty cheesy too. But I have not seen Troy, so I couldn't, I can't make that direct comparison. This, in general, I will say, um, sort of not as bad as last week. We covered Jane Campion, and uh, the Piano was a film that just did nothing for me because it just, it's so many things that I just don't like in films. Just I don't like period pieces and stuff. Like, this is another film that I don't like historical epics. I don't think, like, you know, you can have a scene with so many different extras and their their armor can be so, you know, uh, historically accurate or, you know, and there can be so many people on one frame. But to me, like, that's not exciting in any way because that's just all that means to me is that it was expensive. <laughs> you know, like, it's not it's not yeah. like, wow, how did the filmmaker do that? Well, I know how he did it. He got someone to pay for it. You know, like, it's not a, well, so I- these. I'm sorry, um, but these like these epic, like these kind of historical epics. You know, the reason I didn't see Troy is they're just they're not interesting, and they don't like I don't like them in general. So this movie is probably already fighting an uphill battle with me. Yeah, again, I think Gladiator did spawn some bad movies as well, and I think that, that idea of like you know massive armies just fighting each other and you know CG armies and stuff like that became a big thing throughout the the 2000s and. Like, yeah, that I got kind of tired of that as well. But again, I look back to Gladiator and the fact that they anchored it on the one guy. And I think that was a a really smart move. And I think that's what makes the movie work for me. Um, Actually, I had one thing I wanted to bring up about the the score. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I was watching it. I was like, wait a minute. Uh, That's the score from Pirates of the Caribbean. Did you guys notice this? Oh no, I didn't. No, actually. I didn't. Because hmm. the only the only part of the pirate score I would probably recognize is the main theme, which I'm assuming does not play during this. 
Well, it is very close, actually. There's a there, there's oh, really? A, 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 is it the I same actually composer? Have something, it is. Hans Zimmer did both. And mm. it's interesting because we were talking on Film Junk a while back about um, James Horner. And he has like this thing that he reuses in tons of scores where it goes like do 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 do, and it like, <laughs> uses it in like Avatar and like um, Enemy of the Gates, uh, uh, tons of movies. And so I guess this is kind of the same thing. I mean, there, he's not really stealing it if it's you know his own score. But I, I have a thing on YouTube I can play real quick. I don't know if this is gonna work for you guys or not, but let me give it a whirl here. That was Gladiator. This is Pirates of the Caribbean. Thing. It's pretty weird, yeah. Hans Zimmer should sue himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big. I'm not, in general, I'm not a big score guy. But I mean, this kind of film is going to be. It's going to have a lot of it. So I just sort of that. I sort of had to accept. Um, one other thing: Have you any? Have either of you seen the extended cut? Uh, no. Uh, no. Okay, I have not either. But one of the things that surprised me is sort of getting back to you know Ridley Scott and sort of the what I associate with him as a filmmaker and sort of his he loves building. making extended different alternate versions <laughs> well, yes. of his movies. Yeah. Well, yes, that that's the other thing, but, um, uh, that there are a million versions of every movie he makes, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a world builder. So when I was watching this, I was kind of shocked at how little of Rome we see. I mean, there's the one sort of crowded marketplace where you see the, the sort of jesters acting out oh it's maximus and he farts fire and like he's fighting the emperor and like then there's but like there's not a lot of sort of uh big uh you know uh big sort of money shot scenes where we see you know a lot of you know people or we see rome or we see all the you know we we saw all the old ancient buildings and stuff which is kind of what i was expecting apparently the extended cut does have more of Rome as a city, and it's mm. a little less. Uh, it, it sort of uh, expands on the whole plot of the senators and everything. Hmm. Because I'd say, because I'd say, one of the other things about this movie to me is, to me, the movie's clearly over when Maximus dies and returns with his family. He's committed, you know. He's he's avenged his family. He he goes up to you know Roman heaven, which apparently is just like a fort. <laughs> like it was it's just a big stone wall in the middle of a field he goes to roman heaven and then he sees his family again his hand brushes the wheat and that's it but then the movie goes on for like another seven minutes where the queen or the or no the sister of the caesar is just like giving this big speech about how important he was to rome and it's like <laughs> i don't think that's what the audience really cares about like the like you, you've given the audience exactly like two characters to care about, and one of them is going to, and they're 
you know, one of them is dead now, and the other one was, you know, already rich and powerful and was going to be fine no matter what Rome did, you know? So, like, it, it tries to sort of angle at the end for this big sort of, this is about freedom, and it's, and I, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that it does that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a revenge story first and foremost, and that's, all I care about. Yeah, and I like that. <laughs> right. I like that. I mean, even if it's you know, again sort of you know simple and the good versus evil, and you sort of have a very clear cut and heavy handed uh, version of a villain to where it's like, yep, he's an asshole, and <laughs> that's about it. He doesn't, you know. But I still think that like Joaquin Phoenix just has such conviction, and he's a great actor. I think that. He brings a lot to, you know, kind of just something that you would expect in a villain, but... It's true. I, if I, that, is, that is probably a good point. Like, but I think he'll bring a lot actor. of nuance for the next movie he's in, I'm sure. Yeah, just well, based I mean, on if, the it was, if, it was, if it was another, you know, lesser actor in that scene, you know, before he kills his father, uh, I probably wouldn't find him so compelling to begin with, but... Uh, so yeah. that's, probably a, that's probably a good point. But I'm with you. Just, I'm not big on the the sword and sandal movies at all and i'm just kind of again even when i first saw it in the theater you know having this conscious awareness well okay it's going to go from a to b to c and we all know what to expect but we're all pretty much you know into it we're and uh, again even at a movie that's two and a half hours long i think the pacing's pretty good here i really didn't get bored um so that's that's kind of a plus. I mean, again, maybe I you know like this movie for kind of surface level things, uh, but again, those things aren't necessarily my you know cup of tea either. So I think that I I want to give credit to where credits due and say Scott, you know, brought brought some you know uh, you know excellent choices to the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. It's not. It's. I. I wouldn't say it's a really bad movie. Just. It, I mean, it, it obviously definitely isn't best picture material. But Mm-mm. again, I don't. I definitely don't agree with the, the sort of idea that you should judge a film based on what other people like. You know, if that were the case, then we would all hate. Uh, you know, then then we'd all say, ah, oh, Dark Knight sucks because everyone because an IMDb says it's the second best movie ever, and it's clearly not. Like. Ooh. No, like no, you're not judging it based on what IMDb says. You're judging it based on what it is, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, for the kind of movie that it is, I think it's it's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can agree that there's there are some cheesy elements in there, um, but for the most part, it really held up for me. And uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Cool. Well, let's talk about another, uh, you know, couple Ridley Scott titles that we want to bring up. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about GI Jane. I bet you do. Yes, sir. <laughs> did you did you re- you rewatch that, Jim? I did. Um It's interesting. It really is. It's a It's it, such a weird and troubling movie. Yeah. I don't it, It's one of those movies <laughs> as I'm watching it I'm just like uh again, I feel like it's at war with itself and its ideas. Um, yeah. And some of the choices it makes, I'm not completely on board with, including, I believe you brought this up, just like having the montage of her kind of sexualized. Um, and it's weird, like, the the screenplay was co-written by a, uh, you know, a guy that uh, has made some pretty crappy films, in my opinion, 
like uh, like uh, Pitch Black and the Chronicles of Riddick and The Perfect Getaway and just uh, kind of forgetful films. Uh, and it's you know going off kind of like my my thoughts on on Thelma and Louise. Just you know Ridley Scott tackling this these kind of uh, sort of feminist um, themes in general. I commend him for, but there are certain choices that sort of work against the uh just the, the sort of overall feminine kind of uh you know what what's the word I'm looking for just just the overall sentiment or at least you know trying to articulate precisely what you know I I I appreciate the idea that he's bringing this political concept into the movie I just don't think it's handled very well especially as it goes on, especially once we throw in some Hollywood kind of twists and political conspiracy-type things in the movie that sort of doesn't work for yeah. me. Yeah, well, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, I'm sure viewers may have guessed if, you know, if they're right, not viewers, if regular listeners may have guessed by now, but I'm sort of a liberal, you know, commie pinko. So any military movie for me has to, you know, sort of at first jump the hurdle of, why am I rooting for the military industrial complex in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a World War II movie, that's not a problem. You know, if it's a submarine movie, even like, you know, I don't know of a single submarine that's ever killed a, a civilian or, you know, <laughs> or like, or killed any bystanders or they accidentally carpet, you know, no submarines ever accidentally carpet bombed a village. Like, you know, so I think submarine movies are fine, but there's, it's always weird to me that sort of the dehumanization of yeah. like full metal jacket that's you know like that first part of full metal jacket's incredible yeah, like yeah but like the whole point of that is just like wow the military is fucked up and just the idea of the military is fucked up it's definitely played but, out in a lot of movies but it, but the funny thing is it's played out in movies but it's never played out like the sentiment behind it isn't that like in gi jane it's presented that we want her to succeed right when it's like number one I don't know that I do because I don't know that, you know, why, why are we rooting for her to be dehumanized by this boot camp? Number two, uh, it has this weird thing where the villains in the movie are the politicians and the generals, which is like, those are the same people you're going to have to listen to. You, like, you're going to go to war on their word, not your own. So it's weird that we're rooting for her, for them to tell her, you know, where to go and for them to decide whether she lives or dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are, uh, you know, if you're a liberal commie pinko like me and, uh, it'll make this movie is really interesting cause it'll make your sort of anti-militarism fight your feminism. And then you don't know yeah. which side you're on. <laughs> I, I still don't know how to react to her famous line of screaming, suck my dick. Um, I just, uh, is that, is that, do you think that's an appropriate, like, no, no. Well, the the thing is, the whole movie is about her losing like, her feminine femininity. Yeah, it's about her overcoming it. Like it's it's like yes. It, basically, the end message of GI Jane is you know you may think that women can't be in the military, but women can be just like men. Like, yeah. <laughs> like instead of saying instead of saying like women could turn themselves into men, instead of saying women should be equal to men, it's saying that if they you know if they shave their head. If they lose everything that makes them feminine, if they sh- you know shove all their emotions down, if there's even like a 
there's even a reference line where the nurse is like, you've lost a lot of body weight and that's why you haven't been getting your period. Like she literally stops mm-hmm. menstruating. Like li- everything about her that's that's feminine is like stripped away and that's sort of the big victory. Like the big feminist victory there is – I think it's like Ridley Scott not quite getting it. I yeah. think he just – And there's just the, 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 the little hurdle she has to deal with involving the uh, charges that she's a lesbian. That uh, – I don't – I don't know. I'm. It just feels like a, a, a screenplay tactic thrown in there, just to sort of. I know it's sort of to further the plot in, in in like you know, having her realize that uh, you know the, the the person that is responsible for her getting into this program, you know, has conspired in some way to get her out, or just just that whole you know, even her confronting the. Um, I forgot what kind of position of power that the senator maybe? senator yeah, yeah. the senator yeah it's i don't know none of that really had a visceral or sort of like made me go yeah f- you know let's f- you know fuck her shit up no, now that it's, she's- i mean it's a it's a simple movie about complicated ideas but i think just the fact that um i think what sort of makes it interesting to me is in the 90s like war wasn't really a visceral thing for America because mm-hmm. you look at war movies in the 90s it's all like exercises and it's all like vague like because you know before 9-11 you know the last major war we had was you know Vietnam there had been you know military actions and stuff all throughout South America and stuff, but and you know and obviously you know Black Hawk Down is based off the Somalian Civil War there had been the military had been utilized but we had not had the Iraq War we hadn't had the war in Afghanistan that the kind of war that just seems to go on with no end in sight and stuff. So like the military is sort of just, uh, it became this sort of screenplay shorthand for <laughs> badass organization Yeah. Um, without ever examining the political aspects. And I think that occasionally makes for fascinating movies like this one, even though I don't think it's very good. I don't think um, it's entirely Jim- successful at all, but I mean, I think, there are things again about it, like Viggo Mortensen's excellent in this too. Yeah, you know, yeah, he's really performance he's, of his. He's yeah, Viggo Mortensen's great because he's kind of weirdly ambiguous. Like you never exactly know until the very yeah. end. Like, yeah. is he really against her or is he trying to push her to be? But like, it's he's he does a really great job. Uh, Jim, cool. we I think we spent a lot of time on GIJ. What do you want? Oh, to no, talk that's about? fine. No, oh, um, I'm sorry, Sean. Sean, no, Sean let's see GIJ. Yeah, want, you guys want to talk Black Rain? I did not have a chance to see this. Uh, I, I haven't actually seen G.I. Jane, so I can't contribute okay. anything to that discussion. But, uh, yeah, we can talk Black Rain. I, I think I had seen it once before. I don't really remember, but, yeah, I, I watched it just a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, well, you know, the interesting thing about Ridley Scott, like, I probably would consider him one of my favorite directors, but I, I don't know that he's a director that a lot of people would say that about. I think just because he has such a weird variety of stuff in his filmography. And... I can appreciate that, though, I think. And, like, you know, Black Rain is, like, his, his 80s cop movie. You know, everyone needs one. But it is it is a Ridley Scott 80s cop movie, you know? Like, the fact that it's it's in uh, Tokyo and, like, a lot of the, the, the way the city is captured and stuff, I think it kind of harkens back to Blade Runner a bit. Um, Beautiful but, movie. Yeah, it looks great. Um, and, you know, it's got some some decent action sequences. Uh, you know, Michael Douglas, it's kind of weird to see him in sort of just a straight-up cop movie too. But, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have that much to say about it except that I enjoyed it. And it's. I think it's – if you look at all the, 
the 80s cop movies that came out. I think this one has a little bit of a, an artsier feel to it somehow, but it's still well, pretty I, exciting. Yeah, the art, I mean, the art design for sure. What's, what to me cracks me up about Black Rain is that it has the craziest moral compass ever, which yeah. is the, it's like at, at one point, um, you know that, you know, Mike, Mike, Michael Douglas's character has sort of a dark past and that he's been accused of sort of like skimming money off the top and stuff like that. And it's never – and it's like not quite clear. And then there's a conversation between him and sort of the the Japanese cop that he's sort of teamed up with and where he he admits to, you know, to stealing money from drug dealers he captures. And you go, oh, this is sort of uh, – this is a scene where he's going to sort of have psychological depth and, you know, it's sort of like, ooh, he's morally ambiguous. But the end of the film is basically about him giving money, money counterfeiting <laughs> equipment. Yeah, it's it's to a- him teaching Japan that it's okay to break the law a little bit, you know, like it's <laughs> right. If, it's if, you, if you, if you really want it. So I guess like that previous scene was just like to emphasize like what a wet blanket the cop was for insisting that it was wrong to steal. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like the art, the arc of the film is like he, he teaches Japan the groovy ways of mo- of money laundering. Like, <laughs> yeah. And there is a weird, like uh undertone to the whole thing of like that, Japan is kind of like this weird, like alien world, and like you know Americans. Like I just feel like it's a little bit disrespectful to to Japanese people. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, uncomfortable times. I yeah no definitely and you know I mean you're I think if you're going to watch movies from the eighties you're going to have to deal with racism. You know you don't it, you don't have to go as far as you know Black Rain. You just go as far as Pretty in Pink, and there's really uncomfortable racism. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, like definitely, like there was stuff with the Russians throughout the '80s, but I just found it strange that like it, it, the the Japanese were almost portrayed in the same way that Russians are in a lot of '80s movies. Well, it was yeah, because it's well the the fear of the of Japanese in the 80s from America was that the Japanese were becoming this financial superpower with all this technology and their cars were starting to outsell ours and right, there was right. this like legit fear like oh my gosh they're going to take over um which you know now I think has sort of turned into oh now China's going to take us over which is you know just all sort of fears based in xenophobia and stuff and there is that in Black Rain I think Black Rain's main problem is that <laughs> is that Michael Douglas is just like like his only, like his only sort of tool in his in his cop toolbox is to yell at his superiors and then to like beat people up, um, <laughs> and I think yeah. it almost feels like too artsy of a movie to have that kind of really dumb uh, approach to 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 uh, to police work, you know, like even something like Lethal Weapon. Uh, it shows a more sophisticated idea of how to make a case and how to, um, you know, look at evidence and stuff like that. Um, but no, I, I mean, Black Rain is a beautiful movie. Uh, Osaka is where they filmed it, and or they filmed a lot of it, and it is gorgeous. Uh, again, once again, just Ridley Scott knows how to shoot cities for all their work. Yeah, definitely. Uh, really quickly, I kind of want to bring up uh, one of my favorite Ridley Scott movies that is not very much like um what you expect from him and again when i saw it i didn't have the highest expectations for it 
Although I remember Ebert really went out of his way to praise this thing, and and and, it, and, it, and a lot of people seem to defend it. And I did hear on one podcast saying it was one of the worst Ridley Scott movies, but I don't agree. I really enjoy Matchstick Men. Um, I don't know. I think it, it could be again a likable cast uh, dealing again. You know, my own personal bias of uh, you know portrayals of a mental disorder. This being OCD. And I happen to like con man movies, although I admit this one suffers from predictability. Uh, I think that you know once we reach the conclusion, the final act of this film, it's it's quite obvious what's going to happen, and it, the, the the surprise element is not there because we're so used to con man tropes. And but I think just the performances are really charming. I think it's a light. Maybe for some people, it's a very slight movie. But there are things about it, including I, I really like Nicolas Cage in this movie, I, I, and I certainly enjoy Sam Rockwell quite a bit, and uh, I, I like Alison Lohman as well. And I think that uh, it's just a very simple story with you know simple characters, and I think Ridley Scott handled it quite well. I even like the uh, moment where we sort of get an exposure of you know Nicolas Cage's perspective his point of view of what it's like to have ocd when he's in a house and somebody opens a door and just that sort of like dreamlike kind of detached moment that he has is really interesting and sort of a good visual representation of anxiety uh so i re- i like this movie and i realize it's not necessarily upper tier for some people but i i, I quite dig it yeah, yeah i match- think it's i think it's an underrated movie for him for sure I agree. Like Matchstick Men is a rare Ridley Scott movie that's very effervescent. It's just where mm-hmm. it's just very enjoyable. Like Ridley Scott always. I mean, I think this is just sort of a byproduct of the fact that he makes very long films. Uh, like Ridley Scott movies often feel kind of a little too you know weighty. Like I'd say Hannibal is like for the story it tells. It's like like it, the production feels way too large, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But like Matchstick Men is a very you know, it's it's light and it's fun and it's well paced. Um, let's yeah, and, whoa! It's actually almost two hours as well. I I remember it being not that long, but it doesn't feel that long. No, it and of course, uh, this is like one of the early movies where someone you know realized, oh, like Nicolas Cage is just going to be you like Nicolas Cage can be a mainstream movie star who acts crazy. We'll just build a char- We'll just build that into his character. You know, we'll just. Uh, I, I almost feel like Matchstick Men is, as far as giving Nicolas Cage's character a disorder, is sort of a precursor to something like uh, like uh, uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, where it's just sort of like we're going to build a movie around the idea of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, so I know I like him a lot in this movie, and I yeah I like Matchstick Men. I do too. So uh, that's about it, right? Yeah, we're about yeah. wrapped up here. We talked. We, yeah, we we're, we don't need to go into any more about Prometheus. I, I, I mean Ridley Scott. He makes you know. He, there's always something interesting about his films. He's out. I think they're usually beautiful. I love the way he shoots cities and stuff. It's not necessarily a director I seek out. Um, he's definitely not one of my favorites that we've uh, covered. Just because I don't think he's sort of an. I don't think he's a natural storyteller. Um, and I, I feel like maybe that's something I look for more uh, is someone who has a really good grasp of, you know, how to tell, you know, how to craft a narrative. Um, I think other than 
you know, a few exceptions, that's maybe not Ridley Scott's strong point. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely obviously got like a graphic design, like advertising background, and you can mm-hmm. see that in a lot of his stuff. But um, yeah, I think I, I always appreciate the visuals in all of his films. And like he is a director that almost anything that comes to theaters that he's if he's directing it, what the heck, I'll go see it. Like, you know, I saw stuff like Body of Lies. I thought it was pretty middle of the road. But, you know, there's always little hints of things that are interesting. And, yeah, he's got a few uh, a few disasters, I'd say, in his filmography. But, you know, whatever. I think they're interesting. So. Have you seen The Duelists? No, actually, that's one I really want to see. It was on Netflix for a while, and then it disappeared, so... Yeah, that's one that I, I I I checked out, but then it was like, I just I couldn't bring myself to actually watch it just because it's a period piece and yeah, uh, it's I just, wasn't like that, super excited to see it, but I figured first film I should see it at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's got Harvey Keitel in it uh, and Keith Carradine, so hmm. interesting. Um, yeah, and I've heard good, I've heard good things there. about the uh, director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven too. But again, that's not necessarily. I'm excited for that world to you know go back into that. But I'm open to the you know possibility that it's you know pretty epic and cool and fun to watch, and it's got a, it's got an okay cast overall. But you know, I I, I think it, in terms of I pretty much am combined with the both of you in in the overall assessment of of Ridley Scott as a filmmaker. I think there are definitely moments where I could see how, you know, what he brings to the table and how he does it so well. But his screenplays, uh, there's there's some flaws in there that are hard to overlook when I watch one of, one of his movies, but there are definitely exceptions to that. And uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I, think he's, I think he's okay. I think I'm not necessarily, like, eagerly awaiting what he does next, but I, um, if it has anything to do with Blade Runner... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there because it's, it's something that I find, you know, interesting in of, in of itself, that universe, that, that concept, even if it didn't resonate with me right away, it's Blade Runner is still in my top three (laughs) because I, I, you know, I think that there's in time it might, you know, I might grow to appreciate it. Yeah. That's, that's what I mostly got like out of prepping for this podcast. What I'm most grateful for is sort of realizing that I I had just been looking at Blade Runner. I mean, not that I think it's a masterpiece, um, but I had been looking at Blade Runner sort of at the from the wrong angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, why, that's... Why don't we give our top three Ridley Scott films? And- absolutely. Uh, I'd say that my number one would obviously be Alien. Um, my number two would be Blade Runner. And my number three would probably be Thelma and Louise, uh, if only because... Brad Pitt's character shows the kind of sort of energy in life that's, yeah. that you rarely see in a kind of Ridley Scott movie that all of his scenes with Gina Davis are just wonderful. I love it. I, I uh, That's another one I wish I could have rewatched, but I do remember liking it quite a bit. Uh, it's got Thelma Louise, but... Thelma Louise does the remarkable thing of starting them off as very realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, every part of their transition between, the, between them just like being bored housewives trying to get away to the to the point where when they get pulled over by a cop they lock him in his trunk and they like are threatening him and stuff like like 
and they're just like sort of getting a kick out of being bad. And yeah, like That's every fun. part of that, even every part of that journey is believable, uh, which is an achievement in itself. And I like those two actresses. A uh, lot, same so. here too. Yeah, uh, my number one is also Alien. My number two is Blade Runner, and number three, yes, it's Matchstick Men. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I'm agreeing with you guys on one and two. I don't know if it's pretty hard to not pick Alien and Blade Runner there. Yeah. Uh, for number three, this was a tough one. I really wanted to fit Legend in there because I got a soft spot for Legend. We didn't really talk about that, but um, I had to go with Black Hawk Down. Huge fan of Black Hawk Down. I wanted to rewatch it for the show, but I didn't have time. Mm. Um, but I really like it. I think it's a great war movie that kind of keeps politics out of it for the most part and just keeps you in the moment and just that idea of being sort of stuck somewhere and trying to get out is really intense yeah yeah that was a movie i went into expecting it to be kind of a patriotic thing because i think that's the first american war movie to come out after 9-11 right but it actually does feel very apolitical yeah which Excellent. i appreciated all right guys uh Real quick, before we uh, sort of wrap things up, I want to thank everyone for listening to me and Jim's episode about the movies that changed our lives. Oh, yeah, that um, was really cool. We got a lot of good we, feedback. Yeah, we got a lot of emails. Um, keep sending those emails if you haven't. We really want to hear about sort of the movies that change you. We're probably going to be recording a bonus episode in the future where we read the emails and sort of talk about uh, some of you, the films that change you guys' life. Because I think it's a really interesting topic because there's – before you become obsessed with something, something has to sort of grab you. And it's, I find the way, you know, what films grab someone and why, you know, says a lot about what kind of, you know, film, you know, cinephile they are. So it's, an, it's a topic I'm really interested in. Completely agree. It was very cool to read the emails we've gotten so far. And you can uh, send some more our way over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a voicemail, that's 224-366-9528. We love getting voicemails. Thank you again for Robert Reinecke at the beginning yeah, for sort great. of for his voicemail. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that phone number is also at our website, which is directorsclubpodcast.com. That's right. Um, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Patrick Rapol. And me at Instant Jim. Sean, where are you at? I believe it's just Film Junk, correct? I am just Film Junk and also filmjunk.com. Excellent, Sean. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great talking with you, man. Good conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. We'll probably have you back on again maybe in the future. Cool. Yeah, and as always, I'm an avid subscriber to the Film Junk uh, you know, podcast, So, and everybody should also check out the premium episodes, and they're excellent. Great work, Sean. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. All right, cool. Uh, we will be returning in a couple weeks, and uh, oddly enough, he came up a couple times on the show. Kurt Halfyard returns, probably for another three-hour epic show <laughs> um, on Lars von Trier. Very yes, uh, interesting. A Dogville-sized episode uh, yeah. on Lars, Lars von Trier, which is just going to be, uh, after prepping for that episode, uh, I'm probably going to have to slash, take a bath. And, slash my wrists, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I was going to take a bath and open my wrists, so uh, that'll or, be or exciting. Cast, or castrate myself. We'll, yeah. We'll figure it out. That'll be fun. Should be a good show. All right, talk to you guys then. Thanks for listening, and uh, talk to you later. Okay, goodbye. I think we're just people are having just conversations where they're just like, well, I don't know. Well, it's just different now.
I'm sorry. It's like, it's just, I'm sorry, Peter. I'm sorry, Mary Jane. 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 I'm sorry. Like, it's just, it's just like. (laughs) You need me to turn down the bass? (laughs) Just turn up the funk. Uh, <laughs> do you know actually yeah i could probably turn on the i i never messed around with these levels before play with your knobs patrick that's what they're there for. Uh, turn down the low turn up the mid-range a little bit of high how's that oh that's better yeah, yeah. oh really you want me to turn down my bass 